Kisovic. Good afternoon, directors, staff, and members of the public. This meeting is being held in hybrid format with the meeting occurring in person at City Hall Room 400, broadcast live on SFGov TV and by phone. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods today. Public comment will be taken both in person and remotely by call-in. For each action or discussion item, the board will take comment first by those attending the meeting in person and then by those calling in remotely. The phone number to use is 415-655-0001, access code 2496-422-1967. And when prompted, dial star three to enter the speaker line. Speakers will have two minutes to provide comment unless otherwise noted by the chair. Please speak clearly, ensure you're in a quiet location and turn off any TVs or computers around you. We thank you for joining us today. Places you on item number two, roll call. Director Heminger. Here. Heminger present, Director Hinzi. Present. Hinzi present. Director Yukutiel. Here. Yukutiel present. <coughs> Director Eakin. Here. Eakin present. Chair Borden. Present. Borden present. Uh, you do have a quorum. We are not expecting Director Kahina today. And for the record, I note that Director Hinzi is attending the meeting remotely under the authority of the mayor's emergency orders. Director Hinzi is reminded that she must appear on camera throughout the meeting and in order to speak or vote on any items. And because we have a director attending remotely, all votes at this meeting will be taken by roll call. Places you on item number three. The ringing and use of cell phones and similar sound-producing electronic devices are prohibited at this meeting. The chair may order the removal from the meeting room any person responsible for the ringing or use of a cell phone or other similar sound-producing electronic devices. Places you on item number four, approval of minutes for the October 18 regular meeting. Uh, directors, are there any additions to the minutes? Seeing none, I will open it for public comment for members on the phone or in the room. If you have comments specifically on the record of our minutes meetings from October 18th, now is the time to either put yourself in the queue at star three online or come to the podium. I see no one's coming to the podium, so we'll go to online. Is there a, yes, please. We do have one speaker in the queue. Mr. Pilpel. And why would you think it would be me? <laughs> what? What? Yeah. Never mind. Uh, so far, I think the only thing I see is on page three under item seven, uh, references to um, members Kahina and Eakin, just refer to them by last name. And I think it would be nice to say member Kahina, vice chair Eakin, things like that. Um, I don't think I saw anything uh, that affects the outcome, and I'm happy to share any non-substantive edits with the uh, board secretary offline. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Are there any additional callers? We do have one caller. Oh, next speaker, please. Speaker, are you calling about the minutes from the October 18th meeting? Um, yeah, yes, I am, and I'm... Um, at the meeting, my name is Patricia Boy, Marina Calhalla, Neighbors and Merchants. And at that meeting, uh, we asked for a security guard to be returned to the Pier Street Garage, and we've never heard from Mr. Uh, McGuire. I would like you to do something about that. Thank you. Was that missing from the minutes? Uh, it was in the minutes, but we've never heard back. Okay, thank you. That's okay. not a comment to the minutes, but thank you. Okay. Are there any additional callers on the line? I have no additional callers in the queue. Okay, with that, a motion. I'd like to move the item.
Second. Roll call, please. On the motion to approve the minutes, Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Director Yukutiel. Aye. Yukutiel, aye. Vice Chair Eakin. Aye. Eakin, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. The minutes are approved. That moves on to the next item. Places you on item number five, communications. I have none. Okay, next item, please. Places you on item number six, introduction of new or unfinished business by board members. Are there any, Director Yukutiel? Thanks, Chair Board, and I have a couple small things. First, I imagine you wouldn't have done this yourself, so I just wanted to publicly congratulate you on your personal successes since our last board meeting. You're making us very proud here on this esteemed uh, board of directors, and I just want to say congrats on all of the success in your personal professional life. Um, the second is I want to let the board know that I joined Chair Borden in riding the cable car as well with Director Tumlin to honor the women involved in keeping our cable car system alive. It was a beautiful ride on a beautiful day, unlike today, and I was honored to participate in it. <clears throat> I want to also say that I participated in what uh, was probably the most uh, children I have been around in my entire life, which was the Halloween crawl on JFK Promenade, where I saw Director Eakin. Um, and it was just an amazing example of what can happen when you take a street and repurpose it and you prioritize joy over motion. Uh, and it was just an amazing thing to witness. And I was very proud of our board in particular for helping make that happen. Uh, one more small thing I want to wish, uh, in Hebrew we say refuah shlema, which means a speedy recovery to our most devoted of journalists, Gerald Chin, who I know was sick this last week and hopefully is feeling better. So thank you, Gerald, for being back here. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is uh, it was mentioned in the last meeting that I might have a conflict of interest for the Valencia Bikeway Project, but I've been in consultation with our attorneys and reviewed um, all the kind of ins and outs about that and have determined that I do not have a conflict of interest uh, under the same guidelines that allowed me to participate in the 16th Street Improvement Project. So I intend to continue participating in that and look forward to it when it comes to this board. Thank you. Thank you, Director Cudio, and I'd like to second on the event that we had for Friedel Klusman, who was the reason that the cable cars were saved 75 years ago, and she got together a bunch of women to make sure that the mayor at that time did not do away with cable cars for motorized buses, which we all know that they're fine, but everybody comes to San Francisco not to see our motorized buses. Someone was like, I'm going to do a button that says, you know, nobody comes to San Francisco for buses. I'm like, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that because we want people to take the buses as well. But um, it was a, a wonderful day honoring a lot of women who have supported um, not only the, you know, the cable car and public transit and other things. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Senator Feinstein, who could not be there in person, but also when she was mayor, led the, the, led the way to restore the cable cars and get private and public dollars. So it was a beautiful day. I wasn't here at the last meeting to say how exciting it was when I went to the, the three cap number uh, honoring of all of the long-term uni operators. It was such an inspirational uh, Saturday. I have to say that at first when I was like, oh, all these people are going to be speaking, but it was literally the best event I probably went to this entire year. It was so heartwarming to hear everyone's stories and see the dedication and everyone's families who had been there. And I have to say, I want to thank you. I see many members of our team in the audience today. The work that you do is just so invaluable. It makes the difference in the lives of so many. Um, and so I'm just so thankful and grateful that I get to be a part of an agency where you make us look very good. So I just wanted to say that and thank you all for your service. And I know that we're going to do a little recognition later. So I'm super excited about that as well. Are there any other items from other board members? Seeing none, we'll move to public comment. This is a time when members of the public can comment on the comments that Director Gudiel and I just made. 
no one in the room seems to be coming to the podium. Is there anyone online who'd like to speak? I do see one speaker in the queue. Please, first speaker, Mr. Pilpel. <laughs> can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Great, uh, David Pilpel again. Uh, so just to comment on uh, your comments. Uh, first of all, I appreciate uh, Director Yacoudil's uh, uh, diligence on the Valencia Corridor project and conflict of interest and his disclosure today on the record. Uh, I, I just appreciate that. I think that was to the good. Uh, regarding the uh, cable car uh, event, um, I'll, I was not uh, invited or involved in that, um, but I just wanted to um, make uh, clear that although uh, Friedel Klusman was uh, quite instrumental in those uh, efforts over a, a variety of campaigns and a variety of years, uh, she was not uh, the only uh, one, uh, Norm Rolf, uh, who's uh, passed away, and a, a number of others, San Francisco Beautiful, uh, other individuals and organizations uh, were very much a part of uh, saving the, the cable cars, um, and that work uh, continues. Uh, and just finally, I also appreciate uh, Chair Borden's uh, comments regarding the high seniority operators uh, event, um, as I believe I indicated at the past, the last meeting and at the PAG meeting, um, I enjoyed that event uh, very much as, as well, and I hope my uh, comments, um, which I spent a lot of time preparing, uh, were, were well received, and um, thank you for including me in that event. So that's all. Thanks. Thank you. And I will say that his, Mr. Pilpel's comments were, were beautiful and just well stated and just such a, a, a wonderful story of his long, li his long lifetime love of Muni. So that was great. Moving on to our next item, we'll close public comment. Places you on item number seven, the director's report. Dr. Tomlin. Uh, before I begin, I would like to invite uh, Transit Director Julie Kirschbaum to the stage, the podium, uh, to offer some uh, congratulations uh, and special recognitions. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we are here, uh, we have one board recognition and a lot of winners. And I'm really appreciative of the board for, for taking the time. Um, I'm here to recognize uh, Transit Senior Operation Manager, Lita Rozier. Uh, Lita deserves recognition on any day. Um, so I am gonna take a couple minutes to just describe why I think she's so amazing. But she's also here because she put in hours and hours, formed a committee, worked with APTA, went and studied San Mateo, you know, did kind of everything that you need to do to pull off an event of the scale of the bus rodeo. Um, so Lita, as I said, is a senior operations manager in the transit division. She reports to Brent Jones, who's our chief operating officer. Uh, she manages all of our operators. So she is in charge of our kind of most important staff delivering our most complex service. Uh, she started at the agency in 2007 as a personnel analyst, um, and she has worked her way um, up to be in the position that she's in today. Um, she didn't always feel supported at the agency, and she's worked really hard to turn that into a positive and now is one of the biggest mentors uh, that we have. 
Um, she supports all of our division managers um, with everything from standardizing and really uh, shining a lens on equity as it relates to discipline, um, and also really pursuing all of the things that we've been talking about, celebrating merit and celebrating performance. Uh, they now have walls of excellence up at the division, so when people make positive commendations, those aren't just shared with the person that makes the commendation, but everybody gets to, to see that. Uh, she supports our Operator of the Month uh, celebrations and is just doing a lot to um, make SFMTA um, an amazing place to work. And, and that is necessary, as you know, because we have such a wonderful staff and we're trying to grow that staff by almost 20% right now. Um, Lita um, was born in El Salvador and uh, she came to San Francisco when she was 12. Uh, she did not speak English. Uh, she has been working since she was 14, uh, taking advantage of some of the best kind of programs that San Francisco had to support youth. Um, and then she joined the military uh, where she had a really great person who saw something in her and made her an officer. And that's the kind of person that Lita has pays forward uh, and has been for so many other people. So um, I am thrilled to honor her. She's gonna talk a little bit about the rodeo. I will tell you the manager results are contested. Um, <laughs> A recount has been demanded, um, but uh, despite the very suspicious second place um, of our fine and esteemed director, Tumlin, um, I can tell you that everybody else here is of the highest caliber and uh, really um, represents everything uh, that we're trying to, to do at this agency. So Lita, if you could come up. I'm gonna give you this, and we're just gonna set it right here, and then I'm gonna turn the show over to you. Thank you, thank you, Julia. I'm sorry, I don't do very well about thinking on the spot, so I wrote my statement. Um, I am truly humbled to be honored in this venue. I know that my accomplishments as noted by no means has been by myself or alone. The leadership received from Julie and Brent has allowed me the opportunity to continue to excel with all the ideas and projects that have already been addressed by Julie. None of these accomplishments could have been completed had it not been for the great team that I work with a team who steps in to make sure our goals are completed. I'm so glad to have my current team in transit management who is very dedicated to the work we do. Now, the 2022 bus SFMTA rodeo was a success to the committee working on this project. A team within this committee, a team within this committee who stepped in to help when we noticed another team member was struggling. In most cases, this is the first time that all members worked in putting together something of this magnitude. So I would like to ask the team to stand. Uh, first, I would like to call on Fred Butler, who's not here to stand. Fred did an excellent job running the operations from the logistics perspective. 
a role that he was voluntold that he had to take on. Uh, but he did run with it, and he did that amazingly. He really put in the hours and dedication to getting this on its way. Ami Alvior, who's here with us right now, she's currently my deputy um, senior operations manager. She's always stepping in to help others to ensure we were successful uh, overall in the project. Ms. Amasel Biggins, please stand. And um, Brian Tam from the training department to make sure that all the training materials deliverables were done on time and accurately. Doris Kang, one of the most amazing administrative support staff I have worked with, to have the pleasure with. She knows what I'm thinking and she just gets it done, which is great. Not even my partner knows what I'm thinking many times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Again, uh, Alita Washington, who unfortunately can't be here to, due to some personal reason. She was very dedicated, along with Jose Elias, one of our operators. Jose, stand up. <laughs> Jorge, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jorge. <laughs> Wrong Jose. Jorge Elias, one of our operators, that when he heard we were going to do this, he was so excited because he knew that a project of this magnitude created such, such a boost in our morale within our operators, and I think it worked. Um, Alicia Evans, I'm not sure if she's here. Uh, she's one of our parking control officers. Yes. <laughs> Is she here? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. So Alicia Evans came in blindly. She's, I guess she was, again, voluntold she had to do this. <laughs> but she, again, you know, had such a positive attitude. She took input really positively uh, to make it work. And it showed the, as the event. Are you showing the slide? I'm sorry. And, um, Turn the slides on, please. SF can you turn the slides, please? And it showed, if you had been there to actually witness it, um, I was so amazing that some of the stuff that those little cars can do <laughs> and how fast they can go. And actually, I was sharing with uh, Tom McGuire on the event that I was on Dolores Street going towards 280. And one of those little things actually passed me. And I'm like, how could that be possible? Um, Last but not most important, our maintenance event led by Rick Hong and Eric Wu. Rick was probably the only person on the team that I found out later that had actually worked on one of these events. Uh, and it showed. I mean, he was very organized. He developed his, his uh, schedule, everything that he was asked to do. And I didn't know how he had done it, if I had known that he had already done it before. Maybe we could have more tapped into his knowledge. Um, Let's see. So he was very instrumental in coordinating the judges, the, uh, the volunteers, staff engagement, and training, who was also assisted by John Blay of the maintenance department. They are truly an amazing team. Finally, I would like to acknowledge the team of winners, and as they stand, uh, as we call on you. First, I would like to call on the maintenance team, and we only were able to bring the first place. Uh, on the maintenance team, there's actually three members per team, so can you imagine if we brought nine staff members? There would be no repairs being done right now. So, we, we're bringing the first, pla uh, the first place um, was team number two, David Brown. Please stand up. Austin Yan and Eric Mancia. Thank you, maintenance. Next, I would like to call on the PCOs, 
our first prize winner, Annie Tan. Yeah, Annie. Herman Pratt. Second place. And then Justin Saiki. And la uh, not last, but next, I would like to call on our operators. Um, our first place winner has won the first place many years, even probably before I joined MTA, uh, Mr. Kevin Grady. Please stand up. <laughs> the, the good thing and the bad thing about Mr. Grady is that this actually is, was his last rodeo. Aww. He is going to retire, I understand, right? Okay, he's going to retire next year, but leave. that will open the opportunity for other people to have the first place, right? Because <laughs> otherwise, it would never happen. Uh, second place, Jose Rios from the Potrero Division. Yay. As well as Sam Hong, Ong, I'm sorry, from the Potrero Division as well. So here comes the... Um, the fun part of the event, not that you guys were not fun, but then we actually asked uh, a number of our managers to um, participate in the course event of this one. So we had, um, I really want to acknowledge the, the staff who participated and actually made the event kind of fun, right? Not that the operators were not fun, but to watch managers try to maneuver a course yeah. where we actually had a time limit, but they allowed them to finish. At one point, I don't know which one it was that I'm like, who is that over there, way over there? Because it's been there like 10 minutes. <laughs> so I would like to acknowledge Jeff Tumlin, our director. <laughs> Julie Kirschbaum. Oh. Brent Jones. Chris Ramirez, who's our TMC uh, Senior Operations Manager. Jasmine Charles, our Subway Station Manager. And Ms. Monica Collins who also, she was voluntold to be the MC of the operator event. Thank you so much, everyone, for making this such a success, and we look forward to having our next event, I think it's gonna be in April, for the rail portion. Okay, thank you. Thank you, and thank you for all your hard work on this. I'm heartbroken I missed the event and my opportunity to drive a bus. No, I'm not actually excited about driving a bus. I don't even like to drive a car. I, I am in awe of all of you just operating those vehicles. I don't know how those Cushman don't tip over. I don't know how you deal with every day when you pull right behind a car and need to you know, get the wheel out and go all the way around the car. I can barely do that in my regular car. I don't know how you do it in a giant bus. So I just want to thank you all for all your hard work and dedication. I'm so sad that I missed it. I'm sure there's some great video somewhere I can see. Um, but I won't make, miss it next time if, if I can at all make it. So, and congratulations to, to uh, Director Tumlin for driving a bus and Director Kirschbaum and Mr. Jones and all others who are out there who I know this is not your normal thing. Um, but thank you. Thank you for this so much. I, I, th I wish we all could see it here today. I think it doesn't even give justice to the, all the hard work that went into putting together the event, all of you all participating in the event and the outcomes of, of your success, and to our operator over that's leaving, who's the longtime winner, very sad to have you go, but we, we hope you might consider staying, maybe you don't participate in the contest. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Thank you. 
Uh, so moving on to the rest of the director's report, uh, I do uh, absolutely want to thank the training department uh, for their incredible skill in helping us managers actually make it through the course. <laughs> Uh, I want to thank the orange cones who sacrificed themselves for the good of the agency. Um, and I want to thank, in particular, Brent Jones, who, uh, who raced through the course at full speed, including, you know, including going through the, the slot of barrels in the most spectacular fashion, and therefore uh, gave the rest of us a chance to, uh, to actually score in the competition. Thank you for that. Uh, Transit Operations Director Jones. Uh, now on to the regular report. Um, we'll start with uh, Vision Zero. Uh, we are uh, working with the San Francisco Department of Public Health and the Police Department on the annual fatality summary in response to the Board of Supervisors request uh, relative to Vision Zero. Um, we should have a online tracker uh, live in just a few days in the city's Vision Zero website, and that will be um, updated within 14 days of every new fatal collision in San Francisco, helping us to uh, get the word out uh, and all the detail necessary to understand uh, the patterns and causes of fatal collisions throughout San Francisco. Um, and just another reminder that we will be doing quarterly deep dives into key Vision Zero topics uh, that will begin at the next um, board meeting. Uh, again, we've got a whole lot of events coming up this month, it being November. Uh, today begins Native American Heritage Month, um, also known as American Indian, and Alaskan Native uh, Heritage Month. Um, the Office of Racial Equity and Belonging will once again host a uh, racial equity cable car um, and launch event um, that includes leaders um, from the SFMTA, uh, Native American and American Indian-led uh, organizations also uh, throughout the city. Uh, this month is also Military Appreciation Month, and November 11th is designated as a day to honor the more than 19 million men and women who have served or are still serving um, active duty in the U.S. military. Um, for any uh, veterans listening here today, thank you for protecting our freedom and serving our country, and thank you to the uh, 2,056 of our staff who have self-identified as veterans since uh, 2015. Um, including our own, including our own uh, leader, Razier, who you just met, um, who served as lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserves. So thank you. Thank you for your service. Uh, also, uh, just a note that uh, in Civic Center Plaza, there continues to be a roller skating rink uh, for a while longer. Um, and this week uh, marks the beginning of the holiday ice rink in Union Square. Um, we're very excited to once again um, uh, be a sponsor of this event. Uh, there'll be a lot of additional events in the Union Square area, um, including very prominently the opening of the Central Subway November 19th. Uh, moving on to a couple of other key news topics on e-scooters um, in response to Supervisor Peskin's resolution that was passed by the Land Use and Transportation Committee urging the SFA, SFMTA to improve enforcement of sidewalk riding by e-scooters. Uh, we have uh, uh, taken action to make sure that the three permitted operators, Spin, Lime, and Bird, will not be able to park any devices on the bay side of the Embarcadero between Aquatic Park and the Ferry Building for the next 30 days, beginning today, November 1st. Um, these operators will be fined $150 per incident uh, by the SFMTA for any violations, while we continue to work um, with the port uh, and our traffic engineering division 
on uh, expanding uh, options for uh, riding along the Embarcadero, not on the sidewalk, and continue working with our, uh, our um, scooter operators on improved technology for keeping scooters um, off the sidewalk. A couple of central subway updates. Uh, we are still on track. Um, for opening weekend service between Chinatown um, and 4th and Brandon Station on November 19th. Uh, we'll be running full mock service the week before, uh, November 11th through 18th. Um, we're continu continuing to train uh, all of our staff uh, who are necessary to uh, keep, the, uh, keep the subway opening. Uh, and running. Um, we hosted one community event uh, at the Chinatown Rose Pack Station um, that was intended by a few hundred people. Um, we've got two more station uh, celebrations in the work, um, celebrating the communities that put up with the construction impacts and also honoring the spectacular artwork that is in each of the stations. We had a successful fire drill on October 27th, um, and we're able to uh, do an inspection uh, since we had the small earthquake uh, last week. Uh, and uh, of course, there are no incidents to report regarding the earthquake. Um, I also wanted, and uh, we can bring up the uh, slide in just a second, to honor uh, uh, the SFMTA's paratransit services. Uh, we've been providing paratransit since 1978, um, and we have never been more aware of how essential our programs are than during the last few years. Uh, shortly, uh, Lori Phelan will be showing a video that highlights some of the accomplishments and expresses our gratitude for the work our paratransit staff does to serve older adults and people with disabilities in San Francisco. Our paratransit services include uh, the SF Access Vans, Group Van, Shop Around, and Van Gogh, each tailored uh, to different audiences. And in addition to the traditional van services, SFMTA partners with the local taxi industry to provide cost-effective and customer-friendly San Francisco paratransit taxi options and the essential trip card program, which began during the pandemic. Payment for paratransit taxi and essential trip card trips is accepted in every San Francisco taxi, including the accessible ramp-equipped taxis with the swipe of the SF paratransit taxi or ETC debit cards. Um, the San Francisco paratransit and ETC programs provide services to over 16,000 registered riders, um, and uh, it also houses the uh, Mobility Management Center, the one-stop shop for older adults and people with disabilities to access transportation information, resources, and referrals tailored to individual needs. Would also point out that funding for our paratransit program comes from the current half-cent half transportation sales tax. Um, this sales tax and funding for paratransit um, is up for consideration under Proposition L on the November ballot. And with that, uh, let's uh, see the short video and then I have one additional item to report. SF Paratransit is on the move. In the last year, we provided close to half a million door-to-door -door trips to older adults and people with disabilities. Our partnership with SF's Emergency Medical Services Agency during the pandemic earned an Innovative Practices Awards from the National Association of City and County Health Officials. bought 26 new paratransit vehicles with added safety features. 
San Francisco Paratransit Coordinating Council. Celebrating 44 years this month. Thank you to our paratransit staff for everything you do. For more information, please visit www.sfmta.com forward slash paratransit. Thank you for watching. Um, and to conclude, um, I have some uh, very sad news to report. Um, parking control officer Johnny He was seriously injured early Sunday morning. Um, he was enforcing the street cleaning rules at Fillmore and McAllister. Uh, he was driving his gopher scooter um, and was rear-ended by a driver uh, driving an SUV at very, very high rate of speed. Uh, both vehicles overturned and both drivers were uh, transported to San Francisco General. Um, Johnny is in critical condition. He is a beloved member of the parking enforcement team and his coworkers are all hoping for a positive outcome from his surgeries. Um, the SFPD is actively um, investigating the crash. Um, please keep him um, and his family in your thoughts and prayers today. Thank you. We absolutely will. Our hearts go out to his family. I'm so sorry that he's, that they are going through this difficult time in, in service to the city. Please know we're thinking of him. With that, we will move on to director's comments. Uh, Director Heminger. Thank you, Madam Chair, and I, I join you in that sentiment. And, and actually, the first issue I want to raise has to do with safety, um, and that's the scooters. Um, Jeff, the, the response from our agency to the supervisors uh, somewhat confused me, um, and it seemed to be that we were hedging about what our authority is under our contracts with these operators and whether or not those contracts permit us to punish, penalize, terminate them um, based upon not keeping their vehicles off the sidewalk. Uh, do I have that right, or what, what, what's the actual status of our relationship with those contractors, and how can we make sure they don't run rampant all over the sidewalks? So as always with our uh, mobility technology company partners. Um, our job is to define what we mean by the public good um, and also what concerns we have about those technologies and to develop either contracts or other incentives um, to help the industry evolve towards the highest public good and to create the least possible harm. Um, our current contract uh, does that, um, and we've been working on a renewal of those contracts that will begin uh, in the middle of 2023. What the supervisor asked us to do is to accelerate um, some of those conditions that we're planning for the new contract um, in order to get more serious about keeping scooter operators um, off of the sidewalk, um, starting with the Embarcadero. So that, that is what we're doing, and I, I think Susan Cleveland-Knowles, uh, Deputy City Attorney, can answer uh, the legal authority questions under our existing contract, but what we're, we're striving to do is to push our existing contract authority uh, a little bit further towards its limit. Uh, certainly, thank you, Jeff. Uh, Director Heminger, through the chair, uh, the um, permits uh, that we issue, or the SFMTA issues to the scooter companies, 
do provide for both revocation or summary suspension uh, provisions uh, if there is uh, significant um, just, you know, uh, not obeying the permit conditions. Uh, so uh, if the SFMTA has evidence that a scooter operator is not uh, complying with the permit terms and conditions, uh, they can start those um, processes, and then any scooter company would have the ability to appeal uh, to your hearing officer section. Well, so that sounds like we do have the authority, and Jeff, you're describing in the future seeking additional authority, but we've either got the existing authority or we don't to enforce uh, the placement of these vehicles on the sidewalks, right? So we have ability to enforce. What we don't have is the staff necessary to enforce the rules manually. So we're trying to incentivize the industry to take care of their own problem rather than be reliant upon SFMTA compliance staff stationed at every corner of the Embarcadero. So our, our, an additional goal, so our, our current contract is a little binary in this regard. Uh, and we, it is our goal to maintain multiple scooter operators in San Francisco uh, because we believe that competition in the marketplace can help us achieve our goals of serving the public good and helping to advance the industry towards that more quickly. Um, so again, what we're trying to do is to create more incentives and disincentives that push the industry rather than um, kicking out uh, players. It is absolutely within our authority if certain scooter operators are not working in good faith to abide by our conditions. We can kick them out, um, but we're um, wanting to try to avoid that situation by instead in incentivizing them towards better behavior. Okay, so it, it sounds like we've got more of a practical problem of how to enforce the authority we have. Um, you know, when we voted on making these scooters permanent um, after a trial period, I, I was one of the votes against it. And at the time I was told that they didn't have the technology that would make the scooters die basically on the sidewalk if they got in the wrong place, sort of like golf carts do when you're, when you're driving your buggy in the wrong place. Um, that's no longer the case, correct? Well, so that's, that's where there's some if, judgment If it was involved. the case then. So uh, that's where there's some judgment involved. So you'll recall uh, about a year ago, um, we had all the scooter operators come out onto the Embarcadero to test in public and with each other their sidewalk riding detection technology. Some of those technologies are working better than others. And what, you know, what we're trying to figure out is do we exclude the scooter operators that haven't stepped up their technological development, or do we continue to push all of them towards the best possible technology? Uh, we are, in many ways, the global leaders on this topic, uh, and we're pushing the industry globally. Um, and so sometimes that takes time, and that's where the judgment comes in. And the direction that we got from the Board of Supervisors was to speed up that timeline. And that's what we're striving to do right now. So in the normal course of events, you're seeking some changes in the contract, in the new contract next year. And would th those changes normally be coming to this board for approval? Yes, and in this case, I think we will take those changes to this board because they raise important policy questions. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's been since we've approved the making them permanent that we've had a board discussion of it. So I, I agree with that. Yeah, I think it's, it, is, it is absolutely time to have a larger policy question about what is the role of scooters and how hard should we push what specific outcomes and how do we bake that into the contract? Um, the, uh, the second one can be quick uh, because I guess I'd be raising it under your ongoing activities uh, bullet point, um, and I don't want to stray too far afield, but we got quite a few letters uh, in our packet this week from folks asking to restore express bus service to downtown. And I can imagine there's sort of a chicken and the egg going on there. You know, if, if we put more service in, will we drive more demand? But right now we don't have the demand, so it doesn't look sensible to do the service. Um, can you share with us at least uh, whether you're thinking about that and how we're gonna balance that question? Yes, so this has been a major topic of discussion that we're having in collaboration with all of the departments that are leading uh, the effort around economic recovery for the economic core. Um, so as you know, transit ridership in San Francisco is very different now than it was three years ago. Um, and as we make, uh, uh, as we hire and train new operators, uh, about every quarter, we're doing another round of service enhancement or service restoration, and we're very much following the data on changing ridership, ridership behavior. So lines like the 22 Fillmore and the 49 Van S have ridership significantly higher than pre-COVID. But uh, station boardings at Montgomery and Embarcadero are about still between 60 and 70% lower than pre-COVID. And so for the downtown, we're staying significantly ahead of uh, the ridership demand because we know that downtown will not become re-inhabited if transit's not there to serve it. But by the same token, we can't get excessively far ahead of downtown's recovery because that will mean creating crush-loaded conditions on our neighborhood lines and leaving people behind the curve. So those are the things that we're balancing. We're also trying to get creative as well. Uh, we've got a very good partnership, for example, with Golden Gate Transit, where we're making some additional improvements on the Golden Gate Transit service that runs along Lombard and Van Ness and Mission Street into downtown San Francisco that can in some ways help to substitute for the 30X and the 41, uh, which are still not running. Uh, we've also done the analysis that shows that we've made such dramatic improvements in speed and reliability on our main lines since COVID that our rapid lines are operating about the same travel time as the expresses used to. But we're still hearing from some corridors that there's gonna be a need uh, for something. And so what we're trying to do is to figure out in our next round of service enhancement, to what degree do we need to allocate those operators to deal with crush-loaded conditions on the 48 and the 29 and the 43 associated with the school commute versus add additional capacity and speed to downtown commuters. And that, that will be that just a hard trade-off conversation. So have you sort of established a, a performance indicator that once it's reached, you can start layering in more service? Yes. And, so it's, and when might that be? Well, it's the same sort of performance indicators that we've been using um, all along, which are really associated with what are the ridership patterns and where do we need to put resources in order to deal with severe overcrowding. Right now, all of the severe overcrowding is associated with the school commute and not the downtown commute. 
Um, by the same token, we're also wanting to make sure that there is a reasonable travel time from all corners of San Francisco um, to, to the downtown. It is one of the reasons why we did restore um, the eight expresses, uh, which as you know, uh, travel from Viz Valley and China and Viz Valley and Bayview to Chinatown rather than the downtown because again the neighborhood to neighborhood ridership is effectively back at pre-COVID levels but the downtown ridership is still much much lower than any other trip pattern. Do you think you could and look I, I don't want to minimize how difficult it is to start service and stop service and so on but do you think it would make sense to do any kind of pilot with express service, just throw it out there and see how many takers we might have? That's one of the things we're considering. Uh, and I mean, I won't get into the nerdy details of what we need to do to do some stop relocation uh, in the downtown in order to make exactly those experiments work. But that's, those are exactly the sorts of things that we're talking to the downtown uh, economic recovery task force uh, that we're partnering with. Yeah, because it's a powerful tool we have. And you know, we, we really got to get it back into the fight Correct. Um, somehow. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Director Hinsey. All right. Thank you, Madam Chair. And I, and I think to, uh, to begin, I'll just follow up on some of Director Hemminger's uh, questioning around the scooters. And I, I will have a meeting with Director Torrey next week before she goes before the mayor's disability council. But uh, for her team goes and does that. So, um, so I, I understand that we're we're sort of geo geofencing, if you will, <laughs> the, uh, those areas beginning next month. Uh, so after that sort of phase of trying to to enforce, are we thinking of trying to step up? Uh, this sidewalk detection technology before, I know it's not a list, um, listed as a requirement so much explicitly in this current permit, but are we looking to step that up before the next per permit? And I know we're working with the, the, the scooter permittees extensively now on it, but I just wanted to see if there was a timeline for Maybe stepping that up. Yes. So that's one of the questions that's on the table right now is should we and should we and how quickly should we ramp up both incentives and disincentives uh, for uh, useful sidewalk riding detection technology? Uh, should we be rewarding the best performers and punishing the worst? Uh, you know, over the next six months? And then in addition, how strict should the requirements be um, in the new contract uh, that will start the third quarter of 2023? Uh, and, and again, our, our challenge is we want to push the industry harder than anyone else is in the world, but not so hard that we push out um, players from San Francisco. Um, since we do know that having multiple operators here is in the city's interest and can help to incentivize more rapid changes for the public good. And I, and I see that one of the complaints that the scooter companies have is the theft of these devices are, is making it difficult for 
them to deploy this technology. So when one of these scooters gets stolen, what sort of our actions, what do we do? What recourse do we have? How much of that do we assign to the company, et cetera? <laughs> et cetera. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, you know, at the SFMTA, we, we don't have any authority um, over theft. Yeah. Um, and, and that is part of the challenge, is that the yeah. best technologies that help the scooters perform the best are also expensive and therefore increase the cost to the operators in the event of theft or other kind of loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, um, for Vision Zero, great news on the tracker. I appreciate that staff has um, got that up or is going to get that up shortly here. Um, given the short time that happened that elapsed between the resolution and um, the tracker going live. So congratulations on that. I, I was wondering if you could go into a little bit more detail about what's going to what's be tracked in this sort of 14 day uh, aftermath after a crash that's different than the tracking that that exists now. I know that there is a, a database and sort of interactive map that exists now. So what's going to be different about this tracker than what we what, what we have now, other than the fact that it's probably going to be quicker? Um, I'll invite Streets Director Tom McGuire to the podium to speak to that question. Good, good afternoon, directors. Streets Director Tom McGuire. Uh, Director Hinsey, the tracker that we're talking about will have a lot more details about the specific circumstances of each crash. Right now, the Department of Public Health and the MTA partner on a very nice uh, summary data table that will tell you yeah. in numerical terms how many people died while walking or while driving. Uh, what the tracker we're talking about will share is as much information as we're comfortable from a legal and, and police investigation point of view, uh, making public as possible. So, so many of the things that Director Tumlin has shared in his um, reports at this meeting will be in the tracker. Uh, as well as uh, additional inf statistical information as well for, for folks who want to get a little deeper into, into what happened. The, the purpose is not just to provide statistics, but also to provide um, as much transparency to, to uh, affected communities as possible. Thank you. Um, we appreciate that, and, and I'm looking forward to our, our first um, deep, deep dive um, uh, hearing at our next meeting. Um, congratulations as Central Subway um, gets closer. <laughs> and Director Tumwin, I did appreciate your Halloween costume. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, thank you, Director Hinsey. For those of you who did not see me, I did come um, as the Central Subway for my Halloween costume uh, <laughs> after my Venice Busway Halloween costume of last year. Uh, this is a time not only to celebrate uh, public transportation, but to also honor the shadow. Thank you. Director Curio. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Um, my colleagues have already talked about uh, the scooters, but I will just echo my interest and excitement in getting another bite of the apple at, at looking at this program. Um, I know from my experience traveling this summer that uh, cities and municipalities have a lot of ability to control where scooters go. I remember trying to take a scooter through Hyde Park and not being allowed to and parts of Tel Aviv. And so, you know, 
I don't feel less bad that some scooter companies can't get it done. I think we should come up with rules, and if they can't figure out how to not have scooters be in certain places, then they should figure it out. Um, are we talking just about riding on sidewalks or also parking on sidewalks? So in the case of the Embarcadero, the rules would also apply to parking, um, but the primary safety concern um, is, is about riding, riding oh. on sidewalks. Okay, and then I just have two, uh, a couple of things that were follow-ups from previous reports. One is Director Heminger um, mentioned in the last uh, director's report uh, to see if there was a way, if this board could uh, take a look at shortening the time frame for things like repainting the bus lanes and um, the 500 hours for of public input for things like bulb outs. And I just want to say in the, in the intervening two weeks, I've thought a lot about his comments and agree that our agency should not be spending unnecessary amounts of time on things that are not mission critical, especially given uh, how tight our funding is. And so would love for, I don't know if it's directed by us or directed by you, director, but that's, first of all, a lot of directors. Um, but I don't think we should be spending 500 hours on a bulb out. And I don't think it should take us seven years to paint bus stops. So I'm very interested in bold ways to cut through that red tape to save us money and save the public time. The second is there have been, you know, there were some articles about the Better Market Street project in the intervening weeks, some dismaying uh, reports that we're going to lose the $15 million and that we don't have the money to do the construction. I think it's probably a good time to come back to us and explain where we are with that project um, before much longer. And the last thing I'll say is I am seeing our buses more and more full, and I wanted to know uh, what, our, uh, what work is being done with fair inspection and fair collection to make sure, I think the last time you brought it up, we had something like 25% of the fares we should be collecting, we are collecting. And I just want to know, it, it may not be now, but at some point, uh, it would really, really, it would be good, I think, to understand where that number is and whether it's the right appropriate time to um, ask folks to pay for the system that we are providing them. Uh, so I'm happy to come back with detailed reports on all of those topics. Um, we are asking people to pay their transit fares because that is a third of how we make payroll historically. Uh, and we will not be able to restore transit service if people are not um, paying their fares. Um, and we have a full team of transit fare inspectors out there making sure that that is happening. Um, and I'm happy to come back with a more detailed report. Um, I also uh, am happy to report, uh, so f first of all, thank you for the guidance on having things not take hundreds of hours of, uh, of process in order to get simple things done. Um, I have directed staff to explore um, all of our procedures and look at streamlining the process, particularly for critical safety, uh, vision zero, and accessibility improvements throughout the system. Um, and we will also um, be talking to our friends at the Board of Supervisors to get their guidance on their expected level of community engagement for key topics. Um, because of course, many of the procedures that we have developed um, have been developed in response to complaints about inadequate engagement um, by our partners at the Board of Supervisors. So we'll be working with um, them uh, as well to understand uh, what, what is the appropriate level so that we can all be on the same page um, and balance uh, engagement uh, and delivery. Well, ultimately, it is our staff hours that are being devoted to these projects. So um, that's all I'll say on that, I guess. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions or comments by directors? 
Seeing none, we will move into uh, public comment. This is time for members of the public to comment on anything said by Director Tomlin, the recognition, or other questions or comments made by directors. Anyone in this room would like to speak, approach the podium. Seeing none, if you're online, press star three. Our first speaker, please. We have five speakers in the queue. First speaker. This is Herbert Weiner. Um, I certainly uh, agree with the concern about the scooters on the sidewalk. They definitely have to be monitored, and if necessary, if there is enough violations, you should cancel the contract for the scooters. But the same principle also applies to bicycles on the sidewalk. They're no exception either. I can understand where disabled individuals have to have vehicles on the sidewalk. That's certainly uh, understandable. But you also have to realize that bicycles ride with impunity on the sidewalk, and they should be uh, treated in the same fashion that scooters are. So uh, basically, those are uh, my concerns, and I think it's shared by the public in general. Uh, disabled and seniors are especially vulnerable to unauthorized vehicles on the sidewalk, and it's about time that MTA and other city agencies started to put their foot down. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello, commissioners. My name is Richard Rothman. I live in the avenues near 37th and Portland. And right after Prop A was defeated, Commissioner Borden made the statement that MTA needed to make improvements. Well, things have gotten worse at MTA. And that uh, comment about uh, Mr. Tumlin uh, saying that they need to improve process, somebody died on 37th and Fulton in May, a senior citizen walking across the street in the intersection, broad daylight, was killed by a car coming down 37th and made a left turn onto Fulton Street. There needs to be a speed hump there, and they've done nothing in the interim. Supervisor Chan even gave MTA the money to, to put in the speed hump. I got a letter back from staff saying it's going to take months or years to put the speed hump in. I almost got hit by two cars walking across the same intersection. This is really unacceptable. And if staff can't do, why isn't there the rapid response team out there taking care of this problem today? And if staff can't do it, then MTA needs new staff and leadership. This is really unacceptable. And you might ask staff why they call the Richmond District the county. You know, we pay our seconds. taxes. If, if you can't do the job, then maybe we have to put in our own improvements. I want to feel safe walking across the streets in the Richmond, and it's up to your staff to do it, and they're not doing their job. Thank you for letting me speak. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Patricia Roy, Marina Calhoun, Neighbors and Merchants. Vision Zero, why is there not having a tracker set up for the non-fatal issues? 
we get accidents almost every day on Lombard Street, but they don't always die. Um, why is there not a tracker on those cases? Number two, scooters on the sidewalk. I get a complaint every day about this uh, on the Chestnut Carter, not necessarily on the Union Carter. Uh, why is scooters not scooters and bikes not getting tickets like um, cars? If you break a law, we get tickets, but others don't. Um, uh, express bus service. I'm getting complaints about this myself. I've put out a, we're putting out a questionnaire to the entire neighborhood, and we will have a, 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 some numbers for you to see uh, what the, the demand is at this time. Um, I think uh, you say you don't have enough staff. Uh, when we have three meter maids on the street at the same time, I don't understand why you can't utilize them to do different things. And, and be more uh, creative on how you use your workforce. That's it. Oh, Seth, bike theft. I'm writing a report on that one. Our homeless steal them every day. Talk to you later. Thank you. Next speaker. Can you hear me now? Yes, Mr. Pilpel. Great, David Pilpel. So, this was a long director's report, but going back to the beginning on uh, Leda Rozier's uh, presentation, I would absolutely agree that uh, Muni Division Superintendent is a tough job, uh, motivating operators to come to work every day, understanding their uh, concerns and personal life and all that, uh, balancing with uh, managing discipline for the agency and enforcing uh, safety uh, rules and such. Um, not an easy job, and anyone who thinks it's easy has never spent a day in the chair at uh, Presidio, Petrero Division, Woods Division, et cetera. Um, next, um, regarding paratransit service and um, 44 years there, um, to me, Muni paratransit service really goes all the way back to Tom Rickert, who was Annette Williams' predecessor and either started or was instrumental in making uh, paratransit service a reality uh, before, I think before it was even required at a, a federal or, or state level. Um, and so I just wanted to uh, call out Tom uh, Rickard, which I presume Annette will appreciate. Um, and finally, on the issue of public engagement and ways to streamline, I would be happy to engage with staff on the issue of public engagement. I actually have not spoken to Deanna DeSatis in a while and her staff, so I'd be happy to discuss that. Uh, I think it is important to have enough public engagement and meaningful opportunities, but not seconds. too much that, thanks, but not too much that it bogs things down so nothing gets done. So I'm actually in the middle on that, which might be surprising to some, but um, I, I do think that there are things that we could do uh, in terms of public engagement. Those are my thoughts on item seven. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Next speak, please. speaker, please. Yes, um, my name is Pyra with Senior and Disability Action, and this is regarding paratransit. I really appreciate the report, especially since all that has been done were when I joined paratransit working for the broker back in the mid-80s, 
when I and Annette Williams joined at the same time and were, were mere teenagers, paratransit at that time, we are, um, how do you call it, accessible services was not called that. It was called elderly and handicapped services. We basically ran our whole system on 286 computer network. We had didn't have the debit card. We had uh, uh, what were called taxi scripts, which we got 20 boxes per month of used taxi script each month. And basically, um, anybody who was in a wheelchair that was limited to just vans, the rest was on taxi. And this was at the time, again, no debit card. And basically, majority of the taxi companies did not even do the service. We had no ramp taxis. In fact, back in 2000, when we finally brought it in, our ramp taxis didn't last more than a, a year at a time. So there was a lot of things we had. Um, I have to say the application at that time was only one page, but our waiting list at the time to get into paratransit was over two years. There's many things more, but paratransit has really improved for 30 many seconds. through these years. And so I'd like to say thank you. Thank you, Annette Williams, for still sticking it through. And I plan on seeing it improving more in, in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. That appears to be the last caller in the queue. Great. That concludes our public comment on this item. We'll move on to our next. Places you on item number eight, the Citizens Advisory Council report. We have no report. Places you on item number nine, general public comment. This is time for members of the public to, to comment on items under our subject matter jurisdiction, but not on today's calendar, either before now or after. Um, if you would like to speak and you're in the room, please approach the podium. I see people are. And if you're online, press star three to get into the queue. Our first speaker's online, please. Hi. I mean, in person, please, sorry. Oh. <laughs> I am Flo Kelly, and I am here to speak about poverty towing of the vehicular housed and people who live in poverty relying on their cars to get their, to their low-paying jobs. I say low-paying jobs compared to the outrageous rents and housing costs that are required to live in traditional housing in this city. One of the issues that you as a board may want to address is the policies of auto return. Here's one of their policies. When a vehicle is towed and the person who lived in it wants to and needs to get their belongings from inside the vehicle, the process is laborious. The person must go to auto return where the vehicle is stored and is given only 15 minutes to get their things out of the vehicle. So they are under a huge time pressure and have to make quick decisions about which things to remove and which things fit onto one cart that is provided by auto return. It is a flatbed shopping cart like the kind used at Home Depot and Lowe's. <clears throat> Imagine your own house and putting your valuables on a cart. You would only be able to take a small number of things on one cart and if you want more things from your vehicle, you have to leave auto return with your first load and come back another day, perhaps for many days you have to return until you have everything that is precious to you. You probably have to rely on a friend giving you a ride 
So you probably have to pay for your friend's time and pay for the gas. What I'm describing is not something I'm making up. Myself and Leslie, who you're about to hear from, we both went to auto return and we asked the um, employees what, what the procedure is and this is the way they explained it. Only one load a day and 15 minutes to gather all of those things. Oh, so sorry. I'm so sorry your time is done. Spacing out. Next speaker, please. Hello. Um, I just want to say first, thank you for the members of the board that are seem sincere in their empathy for our causes. And um, I'd like to bring up the fact that um, what we're trying to do is we're not trying to get a free pass. We're trying to reach out and maybe come to the table, you know, a representative from the board or from the Financial Justice Project and put all our ideas on the table because I think we could come up with some really good ideas and because I know to change things, it takes little baby steps. And I'm sure you guys got a lot of politics and policies that you're doing a balancing act with. So if you could help find a way to do that, I think it would be good because just talking at you doesn't really seem to get it. Um, see what I mean? And there's no interaction. Anyway, if you could consider that and perhaps help put that into action, I think that would be progress. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. My name is Robert Chisana, and I'm a medallion holder, and I represent taxi drivers. And I am so fed up, along with all taxi drivers and medallion holders, on this question of ADA. As far as we're concerned, after the Shalala arbitration in the Ninth Circuit, which allowed originally two medallion holders to keep their medallions or sell them when there was an opportunity. Now, the MTA's taxi division doesn't appear to recognize that there is such a thing as disability. This is a national program. Everybody is entitled to that. And it's very simple. You have to make accommodations for people who are disabled. And the MTA does exactly the opposite. The most hilarious thing is we have a blind man who's been told he can't keep his taxi medallion permanent that he's had for 20 years and is legally blind and was stabbed by a passenger. And you say we have equal rights. And I just want to explain one thing, if you will give me another minute. We are not employees of the MTA. 
We are independent people who have the right to hold a medallion that was given to us or sold to us. I'm sorry, your time is out. It's very bad. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Jaime Villoria, and I'm here to support and add my voice to SDA's demand to have every bus stop have a shelter and seats coupled with accessible wayfinding and bus status displays. I think we all here know people and, and or have families and friends that have mobility impairment or people with disabilities. We know seniors, our parents, or grandparents who need a place to sit while waiting for a transit. I understand that shelters as we have it right now are not the best kept because of constant vandalism and are destroyed or are taken over by folks like drug users and the homeless. I know that MTA isn't the agency to deal with those issues, but I think it can be mitigated by adding a whole lot more benches and shelters. To borrow pro-development talking point on housing, let's have so much that there can be a place for everyone to sit. Let's not punish people who need seating and shelter the most for the failures of our city to handle core problems like homelessness and drug addiction. I acknowledge that MTA has budgetary issues and we're on a precarious fiscal cliff that, if not addressed, will lead to the dreaded transit death spiral. We failed to pass Prop A, and there's no guarantees we can pass Prop L. However, if MTA doesn't Im provide improvement on the quality of services that includes being able to sit down and rest while waiting for a bus that's not as frequent because of staff shortage, we, ri we risk losing even more confidence uh, from San Franciscans to fund MTA. What's being demanded by seniors and disabled people are not exclusively for them. The rest of us will benefit as well. Everyone here in this room could use a bus shelter, a seat, and accessible wayfinding and bus status displays. Those would be a huge plus for all of us, and let's work to get to that. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Are there any other, see there are no other speakers in the room? We'll move to speakers online. We have eight speakers in the queue. First caller. Yes, please. First speaker. Speaker, you've been unmuted. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can, Mr. Pilpel. Okay, it kept saying muted, unmuted, banging. Okay, David Pilpel, uh, perhaps the last time today. Um, I will listen to the building progress uh, update, but I may or may not have comments on that and the Petrero item. So I'm gonna try to wrap it up here. So. Um, this uh, first item is to uh, Board Secretary uh, Silva and Deputy City Attorney uh, Susan Cleveland Knowles. There is a new uh, Brown Act and CEQA uh, case that came out uh, last week uh, from the uh, Second District Court of Appeal, uh, GI Industries versus City of Thousand Oaks, case number B317201. Uh, and it involves the amount of notice required on an agenda related to an exemption under CEQA. So I would encourage uh, the two of them, if they haven't already, to review that case and its implications for MTA uh, board agendas. Um, I tend to think that the way you're doing it now is right, um, but there, there may be some tweaks, and I just wanted to call that case uh, to their attention. Um, uh, also on item, 10.1 and item 12 of the closed session. I just wanted to say thank you for including the brief 
uh, description of the underlying claim or litigation. I requested that at the last meeting, and bang, there it is starting uh, today. So I hope that will uh, continue, and I don't think that was particularly burdensome, and it is, I find, particularly helpful uh, to the public. So, 30 seconds. Um, thank you. That's it. Just being positive. Thanks for listening. Great. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Tan Nguyen, and I'm a resident of the Inner Richmond. I would like to request the MCA to veto making Lake Street a permanent slow street uh, because doing so is inequitable. Uh, the Richmond uh, immigrant uh, population actually lives and conducts businesses around Clement, California, and Gary Boulevard, not Lake Street. And residents of this street already enjoy being directly south of the Presidio and having a marked side lane. Uh, most importantly, within District 1, uh, and this is just after Seacliff, this area has a high number of single-family zone plots, a higher home price, and a higher percentage of white residents than the rest of the Richmond. Uh, all of these privileges do not need a slow street added to them. Uh, I hope your office will conduct a community survey uh, and pick a street that have our community uh, best interest at heart. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. This is Herbert Weiner. Um, two concerns. One is that slow streets are really impairing traffic and it's really enabling congestion throughout the city and MTA has a responsibility to address congestion. And it doesn't mean punishing motorists for driving a car. Secondly, I want to say definitely no on Proposition L. Too many bond measures have been passed without any noted improvement in Muni. In fact, it's actually getting worse in many ways. So my slogan is L no. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Weiner. Next speaker, please. Yes, uh, this is Tyra again with Senior and Disability Action. Since September of uh, 2021, uh, MTA has been working on restoring our muni services back to, if not better than our pre-pandemic quality and level of service. In review of, of what has been discussed and accomplished, SDA and its senior and disability members have noticed an aspect of the service being overlooked. The, the muni trip does not start when you board the bus. It starts when you walk or roll to the bus stops. According to Move It um, website, San Francisco spends um, oh, one third of our daily um, muni, sorry about that, muni commute waiting for the bus. So uh, with that and other things that have been brought up like by uh, Supervisor Preston, SDA went out to its um, members and polled 240 of them and asked, what was the importance or is uh, bus stops important in its uh, assessing uh, muni? Of the 240 polled, 33% use a mobility aid or specialized equipment. 25% stated often to always the bus stop is further than the distance that they can comfortably walk or roll to. An additional 35% stated that that occurs sometimes. 47% said that the nearest bus stop from their home does not have a shelter with seating. 
30 I'm seconds. Not gonna go through all those. I don't have time to go through the whole survey, so I'm going to send it out. But basically, the survey indicated that seniors and people with disabilities need a shelter with seating at every bus stop. It's an accessibility issue, it is an ADA issue, and it needs to be addressed, not just the routes, but the bus stops need to be accessible. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. My name is Marcelo Fonseca. I am a K medallion holder, longtime member of the taxi industry. I'm calling to thank you for stopping your taxi division from taking away cab drivers' right to appeal to the Board of Appeals during your last meeting. And I hope you have time to, um, to read the written comments submitted by my colleague Carl McMurdo, the president of the Medallion Holders Association. And uh, very special thanks to Director Hemminger for asking tough questions about the nature of these cases. And in case you still don't know, two of the medallion holders you staff referred to as, quote, low-hanging fruits, end quote, are disabled. One was made blind after being stabbed in the face at the end of his cab shift around the yellow cab premises. The other, after kidney failure, became a permanent wheelchair user. Many of us who acquired our medallions under prior rules before the medallion sales program of 2010, we are over 60 and have major health issues. It is insulting after decades of full-time driving to hear your taxi division refer to us as low-hanging fruit. It is outrageous and very possibly a violation of ADA laws 30 to seconds. revoke a medallion from a disabled, disabled person who can no longer obtain a California driver's license. The medallion is a business operating permit, not a driving permit. So I thank you again for not allowing your taxi division to mislead you with harmful power grabbing propositions. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, this is Jessica Lehman, Executive Director of Senior and Disability Action. I am calling to support all the seniors and people with disabilities who have been calling in and who around the city are calling for bus shelters and seating. Yesterday, uh, when people rallied on Petrero across from SF General, um, Preston from Supervisor Preston's office came out and he was talking about how if we are trying to get people back on transit and increase ridership, we have to think of bus amenities. And we have always known that seniors and disabled people are among the most dependent on Muni to get around. And so it really makes sense to look at what is going to make it possible for our communities to get back on transit, to use those buses. People need a place to sit while they wait. They need a shelter from the rain or the sun. Um, these are simple things that can really pay off. So I ask you to take this campaign seriously and make some changes, put in more shelters with seating. Um, and I will also add, because it's been such a topic of public comment, um, that SCA uh, supports Prop L 
um, particularly because of how important it is to maintain uh, a robust paratransit system, which we need to make even better. It needs to be um, more reliable and easy to use, um, but we can't risk losing funding. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, uh, my name is Licia Montano. I'm the Healthcare Organizing Director at Senior and Disability Action. I'm calling to support SDA demand to have a shelter and a seat and seat in every bus stop. Our members are constantly complaining about how hard it is to have longer walks and longer waiting time for the buses. And you know, this city proudly defined itself as senior and disability friendly. So it is time to prove that statement and provide seats and shelters for all bus stops. Our seniors need it, but also we all need them. You know, I myself need them. And I'm sure my niece enjoys them when we are waiting for the bus. So please provide you know, shelters and seats for all the bus stops. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any additional speakers? I believe that's it for the, oh, we have one more caller. Okay, our next, our last speaker. Uh, Patricia Boy, number one, I agree with the bus shelters. One of the problems that the seniors have is that you took every other, every other um, bus stop out and our seniors are now driving to, to the neighborhood districts. Um, number two, there are some bus shelters, one in particular that I will give you a report on that have, has become such a tense situation that the seniors and everyone else has to have to Stay about 10 feet away. Number three, I'm getting complaints and complaints and complaints about RVs without license plates that stay in our neighborhood, never get a ticket, but the neighbors that have neighbors and our tourists, particularly around the Palace of Fine Arts this week, uh, get a ticket in a minute, but the RVs are not getting tickets, and I would like to know why. I'm also wanting to you, for you to ask Mr. McGuire to give me an update concerning the security officer at the Fair Street Garage. I've not heard one word in a month. And um, I would like to sit down with you, Ms. Borden, about the webpage and how it is not user-friendly uh, in ordering to find the people like Tom McGuire and Mr. Kennedy and Julie, um, take a look at the Planning Commission, um, the Planning Department's uh, staff roster. 30 it seconds. Works very well. And um, you will be getting a report on me on the, on the express lines. I'm hearing rumbles, and um, we, will, we will get a report to you. Thank you. Thank you. We do have one more caller. Okay, next speaker, please, then. Hello, this is Fran Taylor. I'm a longtime transportation advocate and, and well-known crank. And I'm calling to support the uh, previous comments about the bus shelters. 
that they're needed, especially by seniors and people with disabilities, but by a lot of other people. We're talking about the essential workers in the southern half of the city that disproportionately lacks any kind of, of infrastructure at the bus stop. It's just paint on a pole. And these are the people who have to stand on their feet all day at work, the waiters, the uh, security guards at the bank, and so on. And so the people who have the most money and live on the northern half of the city are more likely to have a shelter than the people who live in the southern half of the city. We've seen this in a study done um, in, in 2021. So it's an equity question. And an, another wrinkle that's been introduced by COVID with the lack of mask mandates is somebody waiting for the bus who is immunocompromised and doesn't have any next bus information, and here comes a crowded bus. That person has to decide whether to get on or not. If that person has some place to sit and information about the time and, oh, there's another bus coming in five minutes, well, maybe I'll let that crowded bus pass by. If not, if you think you might have to stand there for 20 minutes, even though it gives you the, the willies to get on that bus and you're endangering yourself, well, that's a decision that nobody should have to make. So not just for seniors and people with disabilities, but for everyone. We need a shelter with information and with seats at every stop. Thank you. Are there any other final callers? I have no additional callers. So with that, we will close public comment and move on to our next item. Great. Uh, places you on item 10, your consent calendar. These items are considered to be routine and will be acted upon by a single vote unless a member of the Board of Public wishes to consider an item separately. Members of the public listening on the phone, if you wish to address the Board on a consent item, press star 3 so you can be added to the queue. And when speaking for all speakers, please identify which item number you are speaking to. Item 10.1, requesting the controller to allot funds and draw warrants against such funds available or will be available in payment of the following claim against the SFMTA listed as item A in the agenda. Item 10.2, approving various routine parking and traffic modifications listed under items A through are in the agenda. Item 10.3, adopting a resolution making findings pursuant to AB 361 to allow for continued remote meetings due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Item 10.4, accepting a gift of technical research and data analysis valued at $30,000 from the International Council on Clean Transportation to further the expansion of San Francisco's public electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And item 10.5, correcting the second amendment to the transit shelter advertising agreement with Clear Channel Outdoor LLC to, to remove surplus language from the amendment. That concludes the consent calendar. Directors, are there any items you'd like to pull before I open it up to public comment? Great, so this is the time for members of the public who would like to comment on any of the items under item number 10 and their sub items under our consent calendar. I see no one in the room that is rising. If you're on the line and you'd like to comment, please press star three. Are there any commenters? I have no callers in the queue. Great, so with that, we will close public comment. Is there a motion? So move. Is there a second? second? Can you please call the roll? On the motion to approve the consent calendar, Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Director Yukutio. Aye. Yukutil, aye. Vice Chair Eakin. Aye. Eakin, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. That motion passes. Places you on item, your regular calendar. Items 11A and 11B. Item 11A, presentation and discussion on the SFMTA building progress program, including programmatic updates, performance, and risks. 
item 11B, authorizing the Director of Transportation to execute a pre-development agreement with Potrero Neighborhood Collective for the Potrero Yard Modernization Project with a term not to exceed 568 days, a potential termination payment that will not exceed $9.99 million, and if approved by the Board of Supervisors, a potential continuation payment of $4.35 million. I can see everyone's really excited about this topic. There's so many people in the room that are not. <laughs> it's packed. It's MCA. It's packed in here. <laughs> Mr. Ruers. <laughs> Good afternoon, Chair Borden, uh, board members. Jonathan Ruers, today, Building Progress Program Manager. And happy to give you first an update on the Building Progress Program, which was something that Director Hinsey had asked for um, a few meetings back. So first, um, believe it or not, it is our five-year anniversary this year of launching the Building Progress Program um, within the MTA. I think most important to flag for the board and the public was this program actually started because of the employees. And it was due to at least three um, employee surveys that we had received in which improvements to our workplace across the agency was a top priority for our workforce. So the agency chose to make it a key focus, and we have since um, invested significant dollars in planning, preparing, and upgrading our facilities, which I will talk about today. Um, but the three key components overall of the program are one, to modernize our facilities and our fixed plant as an important part of providing services, both transportation on the street and muni service, and being able to maintain our fleet, so that's a state of good repair focus. Um, second, to look at technology and resiliency across the system. So as we look at our buildings and facilities, resiliency is key of mind. So one example was when we rebuilt our Burke warehouse and we added overhead lines, we made it seismically safe, but also raised the floor of the building um, in light of future risk um, of flooding. And then uh, making the MTA a better neighbor, we, we talk a lot about outreach and engagement. Um, in this case, the relationship with the public is a little bit different because this is a fixed plant. We are people's neighbors in San Francisco. We run our operations every day in and out. So it's a little bit of a different relationship when we talk about streets or transit service. So we really do build long-term relationships um, with the public that we engage on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, core capital programs as part of the Building Progress Program. One is the modernization program today, and Petro Yard is a component of that. That's upgrading our largest operating yards across San Francisco. Um, the electrification program, so that is the fixed infrastructure, both power infrastructure and charging, um, in order for the MTA to be able to uh, get to a full electric fleet across the system. Um, cable car program and looking at the cable car barn, making electrical and seismic upgrades to the barn and to the system. Joint development across all of these sites, so taking advantage of the opportunities of the properties we own in San Francisco and then looking to monetize those and raise revenues for transportation and transit service. Um, just regular capital improvement projects across the system. And then um, a significant program implemented by our team, the facility condition assessment. We did a full condition assessment of all of our yards across San Francisco, and we continue to make repairs um, to systems across our buildings. This all started in 2017 after completing uh, the 2017 facilities framework. And important, an important component of that plan was it was dynamic. Like we always knew that there were gonna be changes in technology and needs and regulatory requirements throughout the implementation of this 20 year program. So as an example, electrification showed up, a regulatory requirement showed up that changed our schedule as to when we would need to implement and improve different buildings. And we are able to be flexible and change based on those situations. 
there was also a very strong um, cost and capital program development process that was completed back in 2017. So we had alternatives analysis done. We had a 15-year capital improvement program. We had cash flows completed. And we started a corrective maintenance program. So all of that was done as part of the facilities framework. And believe it or not, a lot of the work we do, the building progress program, is the implementation of the facilities framework. Um, just to give people some context, um, the MTA is one of the biggest land owners um, among city departments in San Francisco. We have 20 plus facilities across San Francisco, 60 acres of land, and 2.5 million square feet of building across the system. Um, the corrective maintenance done after our condition assessment showed that we had $60 million in corrective maintenance, and that means backlog. That means we had heating systems that weren't working. There were restrooms that needed to be fixed. There were break rooms across the system that we hadn't renewed um, in over a decade. And then $200 million of preventative maintenance. So what that means is <clears throat> using the asset management approach we've talked about and with our ongoing state of good repair program, we know what year we need to replace doors, replace HVAC systems, correct electrical issues, fix doors across the entire system. And so our maintenance teams proactively work to try to get ahead of corrective work orders by getting work done ahead of time and making sure our buildings remain in a state of good repair. Um, the modernization program is the biggest component. Um, it is a two-plus billion dollar capital program and one of those big projects we will talk about today, the Petro Yard. Um, again, as we implement these major capital improvements across our yards, we will continue to look at three key components, modernizing and bringing up those facilities to a state of good repair, making sure that we're using the latest technologies when it comes to maintenance bays and other facilities for our employees, um, the electrification of the system, and that might mean sometimes looking at electrical infrastructure that is not on our fixed plant. Um, we need to have very strong partnerships in place with both the San Francisco PUC and PG&E to ensure that we have the infrastructure required going into the future, and then joint development. And so every time we will look at our sites, we will look at opportunities for joint development to meet policy, the policy goals of this board, as well as the Board of Supervisors and the Mayor, um, and also as part of T2050 to generate revenues for the agency, ongoing sustainable revenues um, to support our operations. Uh, where we are right now, um, Muni Metro East is at 100% design. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that today. We'll talk about the Petro Yard, which we are ready to advance um, to the pre-development phase. Um, we have completed our initial work on concepts for the Presidio Yard, and we'll be beginning our public outreach process next year. Um, and Kirkland and Presidio, we will likely switch the sequencing. Um, the need to electrify the fleet and stay ahead of the procurements requires us to finish Kirkland earlier than we had anticipated. So we'll be uh, beginning a very aggressive schedule to get that project moving. We will not do a full reconstruct, but we will work to electrify the facility as quickly as possible. Um, one thing I, I do want to stress is it was nice to start at zero because when you can start at zero, you can use all the best practices and you can learn from all the history of the past. So one of the things that we're going to be talking about today with Petro is that we're using an alternate delivery method. And we use alternate delivery methods on almost all of the projects um, that we deliver through the Building Progress Program. So some of the things we learned is we have a master schedule for all projects because they all impact one another. So one thing that we always consider is ultimate delay, the cost of delay. So project A could be delayed, 
but it's impacting Project C, and we take that into account when we're looking at the overall program. Um, we've always had a master outreach program. Um, we've done three sessions for two hours with the entire team to talk about our messaging, how we interact with the public. Um, we have a master departmental MOU, so the program involves more than just the MTA, the planning department, the Office of Economic Workforce Development, the city planning department, the Department of Public Works, and the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. We consistently do new cost estimates every quarter. Um, we did use a BAFO process, so something that Julie Kirschbaum had talked about um, for the train control system we actually did use. Um, as part of the uh, Petrero project. So these are all elements that we've integrated into the program, which is why I think after five years, we've been able to complete um, as much as we've been able to. Um, so just some things in, in, in five years. Um, we have secured a permanent building to be our parking control officer headquarters at 1215th Street. We have always been in a lease, and we will shortly be able to get out of a lease and have a permanent facility um, for these couple hundred staff that we have for this very important service. So that is done, and we've completed um, schematic design on the project. We're now going into detailed design on that project. As I said, Muni Metro East expansion, those four acres as part of a new trolley coach facility has been environmentally cleared and is now 100% design. Um, and then we've got Petro modernization. That EIR, the draft EIR is complete, the administrative draft. We completed special legislation, both from you and the Board of Supervisors, and we were able to complete our P3, RFQ, and RFP process. Um, we've completed $8.2 million of repairs across the entire campus, focusing largely on restrooms at many of our facilities, both operator restrooms in the field and restrooms at many of our fixed yards, fixing HVAC systems, and sometimes we have to get a crane out in the middle of the track um, to be able to replace some of these systems on the roof, and then break rooms across the system. Those were key priorities for our workforce. Um, 17 new escalators have been built across um, the Muni Metro stations, and you will see that there. And we completed new 14, uh, 14 new operator restrooms across the system. Uh, we opened our first new completed um, phase two Islaus Creek bus yard. It had been almost 30 years since we had opened a new bus yard and added that capacity. We built a new overhead lines facility and expanded our central warehouse capacity at Burke. Um, that project was completed in just over 24 months. It was a $42 million project. Um, and Bancroft, where all of our street shops are located, we did close to a $20 million upgrade, including solar, HVAC systems, and tenant improvements at that facility. Um, so that was just five years. Um, I get very excited about that. Um, over the next 12 months, these are the things we hope to complete. So we're finishing a new bus washer at Woods. Um, I give our capital programs and construction division a lot of credit. When we designed the new bus wash, we designed it in a way that it could be used on any vehicle we have. So whether it be a trolley coach or a motor coach or a 60-foot vehicle or a 40-foot vehicle, this will allow us to be able to develop and renew our bus washers at other locations a lot quicker instead of doing a specialized design at each location. So the design we used at Woods, we're going to be using at Muni Metro East. Um, we'll shortly be awarding the construction contract for a new elevator, our first new elevator on the Muni Metro in many, many years at Castro Street Station. And we'll be getting a second one soon, connecting the Powell and the new Union Square Station. Um, we will begin construction on Muni Metro East expansion. We'll start design on Petrero. We'll get that design going on Kirkland, and we'll start the outreach on Presidio. And then we're, our next condition assessment will be to do a full condition assessment of all of our subway stations. So that's lined up, and the RFP is written for that. Um, the one risk, and out of all of this semi-good news, 
is that the Building Progress Program was always going to be a pay-go program. And usually in transportation, I know this board's familiar with that, we usually have full funding plans for all of our projects. The scale of this is so large that we advance almost everything at risk. Um, a key component of that risk was the general obligation bond that was on the ballot in June. So because of that, the program lost $250 million of cash flow. But again, we want to try to keep all of our projects on schedule, but we're going to have to use other methods, as I've told the board, are going to be more expensive and more complicated to keep um, our ability to invest um, in that infrastructure. Just a reminder, you had heard two meetings ago, this is our second highest area of backlog across all of our assets, so 906 million of assets. And our facilities um, and stations represent 41% of all of the MTA's assets. So these are very core and important fundamental pieces of infrastructure that sometimes we can forget, but I think this organization has made a commitment um, to move forward. So we're very dependent on local funding. There's very little federal funds in this area for this work, though we will be pursuing grants for electrification. Um, it is very, we are on very tight schedules. There are regulatory requirements around electrification. There's bus maintenance requirements. There's the fleet renewals that we're looking at. So we need to have these facilities in place to meet those schedules without impacting service. Um, and as I said, we always manage the cost of delay. So something you'll hear when we talk about patrol was always managing to delay. Um, so we actually make it a key focus, my whole team behind me, we're always focused on schedule as the controlling factor. So you've got scope, schedule, and budget. We usually make the schedule the controlling factor in a lot of our decisions. Um, so uh, thank you for all the support you've given us over the past five years. Um, I think it's been uh, pretty exciting. We will have, and I'm gonna take a lesson from this board, I'm gonna make my ask. Like I always hear from the board, make your ask, what do you need? So uh, today we'll bring forward the PDA, so we're looking for approval from you today on that. Um, we're moving forward, and this was one of the lessons learned, to have rolling as needed. So we didn't wait until a project started and then hire the team to do the communications and then wait another six months and then hire the environmental consultant. We try to have the as needed in front of the work. So we'll be renewing a lot of these contracts um, for communications, environmental review, and urban design. Um, I'm probably gonna ask you to make a tough decision on the urban design one because we have critical work, but we're probably gonna have to amend an existing contract to do that. So that will probably come to the board soon. Um, the Castro Street elevator contract will come to you shortly, and I think we got some good bids. And then continued advocacy, because this is, this is really hard stuff to fund. It's an, another reason it was a key component of our general obligation bond, because we tried everywhere else to get the money. And so it was self-funding um, that we needed to attempt to do to move this forward. So um, any questions on anything I just said? Director Hinsey, I know, had a question, so why don't we go to Director Hinsey's question. I just had a, a couple questions. Can you explain a little bit more why we need to advance and switch the order of Kirkland and First City? I mean, are we, are we, are we reconstructing them both, and what, why would we have to switch the order then if we're reconstructing them? Sure. Um, so there, there's a couple things. One, um, one lesson learned from Potrero is that joining um, private infrastructure with public infrastructure is extremely difficult. And um, it's a lesson learned we've taken into the planning for the Presidio yard, 
where we think the property is large enough and designed in a way that we can split the private development from the bus yard. We're still evaluating options. Um, so that gives us a little bit longer of a lead time on, on that project and making it work. Second, um, we had a consulting team at WSP look at the schedule of bus replacement and electrification as we switch from you know, our, our hybrid vehicles over to battery electric. And so the demand for parking spaces and charging infrastructures was ahead of when we thought Kirkland Yard would be done and the capacity that we would have in place. So Petrero will provide some of that capacity, but we wouldn't have enough. So Kirkland can kind of bridge us because it's a smaller facility and we can shift the project to more electrifying the site. That will allow Presidio to follow to continue to build on that capacity as more electric vehicles come in. So um, that's the reason that it, it was gonna be Presidio next and then do Kirkland. We're gonna, we're gonna continue planning with Presidio but slow it down a little, but move full speed to get Kirkland electrified as quickly as possible. Okay, perfect. And then last question is, it's, it's not so much similar to like a specific facility, but uh, at our PEG meeting, Director Christina and I at our, at our last meeting had a, had a very sober presentation on uh, sea level rise. And we'll talk about uh, MME, I'm, uh, I'm assuming in the next item, the next part of this item. Um, but that was identified as a facility that will be and is vulnerable, <laughs> vulnerable to sea level rise. Um, and I asked this at that meeting, and I'll ask you for your perspective on it. Is there, what are we doing in order to help mitigate sea level rise at that property? Yeah. That, that is something that, that we have been looking at. I mean, I, I will say, and I'm gonna speak for Director Tumlin, he's been very clear with the other climate directors and the city family that the line of defense that Muni Metro East must be on one side of that, no matter where the ultimate line ends up, like we, we need to consider it like defended. Um, that said, yeah. for the four acre project that we're gonna be implementing, one of, the, one of the hardest parts of managing the site was controlling the water on the property. So um, we're actually gonna be using some creative landscaping and some tanks and to manage the water on the property and tie it to the bus washer. Um, oh. So it was actually kind of a, a creative one. We had to deal with the BCDC to some extent issues being that close. We're, we're not within their zone, but we needed to manage the, the water on the site and the drainage. Um, so. The, the plus was that we came up with a very creative solution. The negative was that we have to take a component of the four acres to set aside for this landscaping and drainage, um, which made the, the storage capacity and kind of managing the property kind of tight. So that is not a permanent solution. That is not the, the 100 year flood um, solution. It will help us manage the water on the property, and then we're going to have to consider, you know, as as the waterfront plan continues, and as we have a larger capital improvement program around this, we'll have to consider other options in the future. Yeah, it's it sounds like you have a semi-immediate crisis solution, though, which is um, very creative. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Manager. Thank you, Director Eakin. 
Thank you. Just one question. I'm looking at the slide um, two, which is kind of around the, the framing of the objectives of the program. You talked about the state of good repair, resiliency, community. I'm also just noting that on, on this project we're going to discuss today, as well as some of our other assets, there are significant opportunities to develop those assets to generate revenue for the agency. And I'm just mm -hmm. wondering if that factors at all, is that rise a level of sort of an objective? You, of all people, how do you think about <laughs> financial security and stability of the agency as um, a reason to do this work? I, I, I always talk about financial, the financial resiliency of the agency, and, and you know, I know Director Tumlin talks about sustainable funding sources. Like, we need things that are going to be ongoing. Um, I will discuss that with, with Petrero. Like, there is an opportunity, there will be an opportunity. We will make money from Petrero one day. It might be three decades from now, but it can be counted as positive revenues that will come towards the agency in the future. I think the other thing, at least with Petrero, which was, I mean, what we should all celebrate is we're gonna build a piece of infrastructure that doesn't exist anywhere. And we did it through a process that has never been fully utilized in San Francisco, which is exciting. So yay to this agency for you know pushing forward this sort of thing in San Francisco. It sets an excellent template for the market, which I think we'll see greater interest on future projects. Um, and it also provides us the tools to calculate how much our revenue potential is across all of our sites. So even after Petrol, we're definitely looking at Presidio. And I think there are some incredible, amazing opportunities on that property, especially if we can split the bus yard from the private development and still get everything we need. I think there, you know, Director Hemminger has been asking about our parking garages. We're definitely looking at them. And I think there are some amazing opportunities for us where we've done pro formas and we've taken a look at it. I think market conditions are probably in our way right now. And I think there's a whole discussion about um, the land use around where some of our garages are right now post pandemic. But we have looked at those opportunities also we're considering, especially with the financing of Petrero, about how can we keep the revenues generated on our own property in total? And you know that will be a conversation for this board and the board of supervisors and maybe the state at some point. But again, if these revenues are going for a public service, i.e. transit, in my opinion, who should be against that? So. Any other questions or thoughts from directors? Now I'll move to public comment. This is time for members of the public, since we have so many in the room, <laughs> to comment on this item. Seeing no one in the room interested in this item, if you're on the line, you can press star three at this time to join the queue. Moderate. We have do two speakers in the queue. Great. First caller, please. This is Herbert Weiner. My concern about these improvements in project is Will it make room for the expansion of the fleet? Because the city population is growing, the need is growing for more buses and coaches for transportation. And hopefully, these projects will be able to accommodate more vehicles to serve the public. This is especially necessary, and you have to think of it in terms also in case of man-made and natural disaster. Public transportation is going to be a necessity in this case. We definitely need more vehicles uh, to serve the public. And that means a net addition of vehicles and coaches to the fleet. Thank you. 
Thank you. Next speaker, please. Uh, David Bilbo again. So I wasn't going to weigh in on this, but I did have uh, two thoughts. Um, on slide eight, uh, there is a reference to uh, second bullet to the Master Poets Outreach Plan. Uh, could staff please send me a copy of the Master Poets Outreach Plan for the Building Progress Program? I would appreciate that. And thinking less about the sequencing between Kirkland and Presidio, but just about Kirkland, the Kirkland site itself, somewhere way in the back of my mind, I believe that when Muni was under the jurisdiction of the Public Utilities Commission in the early 90s, that there was a declaration of uh, Kirkland as property surplus to the utility needs of the PUC at the time. And I would ask uh, Jonathan and the city attorney folks and Kirsten and the real estate folks to go research um, PUC resolutions and if I am correct, whether this uh, board needs to, by uh, some new action, rescind that surplus property designation so as to keep Kirkland uh, as is and allow for the reconstruction, because I'm just concerned, again, in the back of my mind, that that surplus designation may cloud uh, uh, reuse and reconstruction of the Kirkland site for continuing uh, public transit purposes. So there's my little history tip. And anything else, I can follow up with Jonathan and his very competent staff on uh, these issues. Thanks for listening. Thank you. We have no additional callers in the queue. So with that, we'll close public comment. Any other comments from directors? Seeing none, that, that ends this item. That closes this item. Thank you. Okay, so now we are up with the Petroleum Yard Modernization Project and the pre-development agreement. Um, to answer one of the callers on the phone, all of these projects will add capacity for us to store and maintain more vehicles. So that was Excellent. a key component of the plan. Um, if you remember, um, this board went through a marathon meeting yes, in February and March on the terms of the pre-development agreement, and thank you very much. Eventually, you did approve them. Um, so the next step was for um, the amazing team behind me, Tim Kempf, Kirsten McGarry, Bonnie Jean Von Crow, and many, many, many other people to complete the developer procurement process. Um, I will start by saying we intended on coming back to you by the summer, and we did not. Um, the reason being is we did choose to use the best and final offer process. So we did go through a BAFO. Um, we went through the proposals. Um, and we requested essentially a new RFP, a new response. So we did go through that process. Um, I will say again, um, since we've been talking about it for the train control project, I thought it was very successful and helpful. And again, the reason we went through that and essentially ate the six month delay on the schedule was that future risks when we don't do our due diligence upfront before entering into agreements can mean very expensive change orders and delays on the back end of a project. So that was a lesson learned. Um, both Director Tumlin and I evaluated the risk of the delay and there was greater value to wait, go through the proposals again, talk to the proposers and then come back to the board. So that's why we are here now. Um, so there were three um, pieces of direction from that March meeting. So when we come back with the selected developer team, we're doing that today. 
Um, we will cover some of the elements of the developer team proposal. We're gonna come back later. Um, what I'm saying now is this agreement allows us to get married to our partner. Please give us some time to have a honeymoon then we will come back to you with beautiful ideas and our process and our next step. So we do, as a team, want you to have an opportunity to talk to the, the developer team plenary, um, but we would like to meet with them first and, and kind of figure out how we're gonna set up the house and live together and, and do all this stuff, which we will be for the next 30 years. So I just wanna make sure to do that. Um, so we'll cover that. And then last, um, Director Hemminger did amend the resolution to ask that we hire a PMO. Um, we will start the process, well, we actually already started, of writing the RFP for that. Um, and that person will advise this board, Director Tumlin and myself, during the course of the project. So today we're asking for final approval. This will officially put us in the pre-development phase of the project for the public. That's essentially, we're going to start the detailed design of the project in the bus yard. Um, here's our schedule, so you will see where we are today with the developer um, selection. Um, the critical path will take us to get the entitlement approval and to get our CEQA approvals. So we already have a draft EIR completed. We were waiting for the proposal from the developer. We'll do a little more work and then move that forward through the Planning Commission and to the MTA Board and Board of Supervisors. We'll continue the design process um, and continue negotiations around the financing of the project. And I'm not gonna, you know, that's a risk. It's a very complicated project and it's a risk, but we do have a risk register and we have ways to manage it. So again, resiliency is the key. Um, so we'll continue to do that. So that's PDA phase three. We will work towards financial close and the final project agreement will come to this board and it will go to the board of supervisors. So you will be a part of this process all along the way. So we'll come back to you with entitlements. We'll give you regular updates and we'll come back with the final project agreement and financial close, and then we will move into construction. Um, 2027, so this is a big project. Um, that's five years. So um, we're gonna prove to everyone that we can deliver a major multi-hundred million dollar capital project in, in five years, that's the plan. So here is, um, here is who was selected. So the official name, the LLC, is the Petro Neighborhood Collective. Uh, Plenary Americas, um, and they have an office in Los Angeles, is the sole equity member. We have a number of affordable housing developers in the RFP. They were, you know, they were supposed to be local, so you'll see Meta is one of them. Um, Young Community Developers is on there, Tabernacle. Um, the housing developer, Presidio Development Partners, that's for another component, the workforce housing component of the project. Um, you'll see the design consultants there, plant construction company, and the infrastructure management consultant, WT Partnership. So this will be the entire team, including our own staff, which includes staff, again, from the Office of Economic Workforce Development, the Mayor's Office of Housing, um, the Department of Public Works, led by Tim Kempf, our own staff, um, and then urban designers and the city design team in the planning department. So a lot of people will be continuously involved in this project. Um, so the other, uh, so here are the elements of the proposal, which is what the board requested. So the bus yard does have three levels. So to answer one of the prior questions, this increases the physical capacity for us to store buses on this property. So one of the key elements, so 600,000 gross square feet. Um, it allows for us to restore the existing trolley coach fleet that is on the site now, but also adds the agency's first capacity for electric buses. 
So the electrical infrastructure and the new technology required to store, maintain, and charge electric buses will be at the site. We are piloting those technologies now. Um, we're piloting vehicles at Woods Yard, and we'll be doing a second pilot at Islaus Creek um, to prepare for this. But this will add absolute capacity to our fleet storage and maintenance, but also, um, again, future-proofing new technology with electric bus. Um, on the housing component above, um, there are essentially four elements of the housing. One is a senior housing element, so these units are at 80% of AMI or below. A senior housing um, component, uh, two family housing elements. So again, this would be 51% of the project and would be absolutely affordable income, uh, affordable housing units. And then there's a moderate um, income um, component of the project, essentially workforce housing of 280 units. That would be the 49% of the project. The reason why there are two components of this that are gonna be different. The financing is different on that component one. Second, there's been a lot of discussion from this board, our own employees about how can they access some of these units? Well, we can't legally give preference. We can create the market conditions that would allow them to access these units. So this workforce housing would be a lot more accessible to our employees because of, you know, to some extent, their income and what they get paid. So it will open up some opportunities for them there. But it is financed differently. It will require um, a policy decision by the Board of Supervisors on one component of the financing. But I also want to be clear, because this was direction from this board, um, these are discrete elements. So if the financing doesn't work out, we can start stepping it back. So Director Tumlin was very clear about this. This board was very clear about this. We are the Municipal Transportation Agency. It is our job to provide transit service. It is our job to upgrade our facilities and infrastructure. So the PDA phase and process allows off-ramps <coughs> all along the way. If the financing doesn't work out, if there's regulatory risk, we can start slicing off some of these pieces if it's necessary. We will also not be providing any transportation funding to those elements of the project. So I wanna be very clear about that. Um, to answer your question, Director Eakin, on the will we get money? So over the term, over the 30-year period, ultimately of the ultimate project agreement as part of this arrangement, what the MTA will get is a building at essentially 80% of where it was purchased. So we get a very good state of good repair renewal program over the period. Um, and eventually, after the 30-year period, the agency will get the revenues associated with the housing. But that is at year 31, 35. I mean, we do a 30-year financial forecast, but at some point, we will get the positive revenues. During that period, though, those revenues are all built into the overall development agreement. So that is this site, and we agreed as a matter of policy to keep it neutral, meaning no transportation dollars get in. We get a much better, well-maintained, renewed facility. Um, on future sites, the planning department and others were being much more aggressive. So I, I just want to be very clear that compromises were made as we look at the larger city. Um, going forward. And then lastly, there are commercial uses, um, especially along Bryant Street um, at the lower part of the senior housing. So those are the components of the proposal. And then these are, so this is 5% conceptual. So pay no attention to paint colors or the Rubik's Cube. This was just a beautiful component, but we just wanted to give people a sense of how the land use will change. So you're looking at Bryant Street. Um, 
you're seeing the commercial at the bottom um, on the ground floors. You're seeing that senior housing as the element above that. That is discrete from the bus yard. So you'll see it's in front. It's not layered above. That again is on purpose. There are components above. There are components along the street. You'll see above that um, as the family housing. So those affordable housing units. And then this just gives you a sense of from the park side. So this is 17th Street. Um, again, conceptual. This is just to give you a sense of the scaling and what it will look like. Um, here's Franklin Square. You're looking at the site. So what you're seeing on the left in this picture, that would be sort of that workforce housing component, that building um, on the left um, in this photograph. This side, um, currently in the design, has the ramping to get the vehicles up to the various floors. So it will definitely be a design challenge. We will work very closely with our patrol yard working group and with our neighbors in the mission um, to come up with something amazing. Uh, but this, again, we're just getting married to our partner. Let us have our honeymoon. Then we're going to invite everybody over for dinner. And the dinner will be good, I am hoping. Um, so that's it. And we are hoping to get your support and approval on the agreement today. Great. Well, we just hope that picture was conceptual. I, I thought it was pretty ugly, personally. But anyway, <laughs> direct to Heminger. Wasn't a bad picture, Madam Chair. Um, Jonathan, I guess I could continue with your analogy uh, about the wedding and say that this is also the point where if anyone knows of any reason why we shouldn't let them get married. Oh, God. Uh, and I don't think I have one of those today, unless you come up with a showstopper yourself. But I did want to better understand a couple of, of essentially financial elements of this uh, P3 contract. Um, so I want to start with the city's obligations under the contract. Um, the first is I understand that we will have a requirement to make a capital contribution to the project. Um, now, I realize that for many of these questions, you may have to say, look, we haven't figured that out yet. We're still negotiating. So just say that when you have to. But in this case, do we have an agreement with the developer over what that contribution is? How much? Yeah. So there, this mic. Oh, there. Thank you, Christine. So again, there, there are kind of two distinct phases in agreements. So today is the pre-development agreement we will have a final project agreement. So over essentially the next two years, we'll be negotiating the terms of the project agreement. Um, when we ultimately get to the project agreement, yes, there will be a component where essentially we should be making a capital contribution. This project will be financed over time. That, that is the nature of the design, build, finance, maintain project delivery concept. But we will have um, a capital payment to make um, when we get to substantial completion and when we enter into the project agreement, yes. So what we're what you're asking us to, for authority to do today, um, does it tip the hand or it basically just says we will agree at some point in the future on a capital contribution? It authorizes the process in the PDA phase for us to negotiate what those terms would be we will come back to this board with the project agreement to see if it is acceptable to you once we've completed those negotiations. 
And I seem to recall, uh, I think you, you referred to it today, um, you're hoping that the bond uh, could have covered some or all of that amount. So um, we... So what's plan B? Yeah, so as I said, they're, they're a component of connected projects. We've got 1399 Marin to maintain the trolley coaches. We've got the expansion of Muni Metro East to store the trolley coaches and run our operations. And then we have Patrol. Um, as part of the general obligation bond, we asked for $250 million to help us pay for components of those projects. So as an example, Muni Metro East is $120 million. Um, 1399 Marin is looking like it's going to be in the $70 to $80 million. Those were projects in front of Petro, and then we would have that capital payment. So when I said Muni Metro East was at 100% design, like, and we told the voters we have shovel-ready projects, that was one of the shovel-ready projects. Um, we did have a backup plan um, and other sources to point to um, to keep the cash flow of these projects moving. One of those was Regional Measure 3, um, which is still pending in the courts. Um, so we'll see right, where, so you've, you've got so we'll see where that ends up. You've got litigation risk there. Yeah, we, there's, we, there's we definite lose. litigation risk there. Right. Um, there is also um, sales tax. To some extent, whether or not Proposition L may pass or not, um, we would definitely look to our partners at the Transportation Authority as a source to cover that. Um, but so hold, just hold on. Yeah. there's a category in that measure that would that could be spent on this yes. project. Okay. And then um, the third option, which was authorized in the special legislation, was that the um, selected developer could build. Um, early works projects, essentially projects in advance of Petro or were requirements, we're going to exercise that option and have the, the developer finance Muni Metro East, hopefully to be able, by the time we get to substantial completion, make the capital payment on the project. So we, we had period, we had geobond, we had RM3, we had sales tax, and we had financing as, as kind of the resiliency last line of defense. Um, but we think we can work it out and keep everything on schedule, but there's risk. But at some point, you're going to have to transition from options to the answer. Correct. Um, and when does that have to occur by? Uh, we, we will have a much better um, update for you when we bring forward the award of Muni Metro East, because we will have to go through that and cover the risks. Um, we're still kind of waiting to see where the state Supreme Court might be on RM3. We need to see what happens in the election next week. Um, plenary will go out and bid Muni Metro East. We want to see what the bid market looks like. Um, they're preparing options for us, and then we'll negotiate that and bring that to this board. So you know, my ask is that let us come back to you let, when, we, when we come with the contract, and, and you'll see what those options and well, risks are. Uh, well, we, we really don't have an option on that um, mm -hmm. if we're going to go ahead today. But I, I think it is important to note that what we've got here are sort of risk on both sides of the question. Correct. We don't know what the bogey is yet, and we don't know where we're going to get the money to cover the bogey, that we don't know what it is yet. Is that fair? That is the nature of PAYGO construction. So yes, that is, that is always the implicit risk. Um, there, we, will, we will provide options and risks to the board when we come back with um, Muni Metro East. And then I think what, you know, I will not be CFO two weeks from now, but I think we, um, 
the executive team should have a discussion with the board about risks during the board workshop. And then at year end, you know, typically if we have remaining balances or cash, it has been our tradition to set those aside for our facilities and buildings, but I can't predict what right. that amount would be in the first quarter. That, that, that's fair enough, Jonathan. Um, the, the, the second obligation, as I understand it, is the availability payment. Mm -hmm. um, which is an obligation to make a payment to the developer, essentially covering their debt service, mm -hmm. um, for 30 years, correct? correct? It's an annual payment for 30 years. Correct. Um, has that number been agreed to, or is that also going to be subject to negotiation? That is subject to negotiation, um, but we have included the risk for that in our 30-year financial forecast. So when we brought to you T2050 and we've shown the ongoing expenditures, the assumption that the agency would have to take an expenditure on like that is assumed in those scenarios. The, the source, I, I assume, is our operating budget, correct? You are correct. And this payment would have priority over other expenditures, right? It's, it's basically a debt payment. Uh, it's would be a payment to a major contractor, very much like we have workers' comp or we have, you know, our paratransit is a full contract for service. So this contract would be added to that as an annual obligation of the agency, yes. And, I mean, presumably that, that'll be reflected in the agreement between you and the operator. It will be in the final project it agreement. Has in Correct. the budget and what you can do and can't do ahead of it. That's right. right. Okay. Are there any other substantial financial obligations for the city, or are those the, the big two? You, the, the capital payment, the eventual agreement on the availability payment will be key elements of the final project agreement, um, and we will keep the board briefed about that. I think, you know, we can use your analogy again. The first bite of the apple will be when we discuss Muni Metro East and awarding that. And that will um, be when again? I would say Tim can help me, but I think we're trying for the spring. We're, we're, we're trying to get it out the door. It's at 100% design. I think we're assuming about 90 days to get it out on the street okay. and then get something to the board to award. And this whole process of negotiating the final agreement takes how long? I'd say 18 to 24 months. Okay. From today? Yep. Um, the, the second thing I wanted to ask you about is this fixed budget limit. Um, because I, I, I suspect that it, that may be one of those uh, <laughs> phrases that doesn't quite fully describe what it's talking about. Um, now, presumably you have reached some agreement on what that number is because it's in your staff report, right? It is the number that has been proposed to us from the selected team. Right. And you've only got one team selected, so um, they're the guys, and this is the number. It's 392. Um, now, again, my understanding is that there are three categories of expense that are not included in that number. One is contingency, a second is escalation, and a third is financing. Is that correct? There, the fixed budget limit that was to be proposed to us does not include risks that could emerge during the PDA phase. I think you have named some of those risks. And I'll let Tim Kempf add to that if I missed anything. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Hello, Madam Chair, Board and Directors. Director Hamminger, your question was, so the FBL is 392 million, and then there's three additional categories that build on top of that, and that's correct. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, so just a question on each of them. Uh, mm -hmm. On the contingency, I, I'm not going to ask you for a number because then some smart guy could figure out, <laughs> working backward, what, what we're talking about. But um, what's the percentage contingency? Well, that would be the same thing, wouldn't it, Director? Well, no, not, not a percentage out in the air. Right. So um, to build on top of that FBL, we have an escalation. And it's not a fixed value. It's actually a methodology. So while we can't establish a percentage of escalation, um, certainly not based on today, added to generational high, we're establishing a methodology where they figure out escalation. Same thing where we establish a methodology to figure out category number two, uh, which is allowances, which are scope items that haven't been fully defined and therefore need to be defined and designed and estimated and then added on to that FBL. Um, and then on top of that is the cost of finance as well. So that in and of itself is a range. Um, it's, we have figures that have been proposed to us. It's based on a number of variables, uh, uh, most of which will have to be determined in this next 18 to 24 month PDA period. Well, and as you're aware, uh, you know, I think uh, San Francisco in general uh, and MTA in particular doesn't have a whole lot of experience uh, with estimating financing costs. Uh, the experience we have with estimating escalation and contingency is pretty lousy. Um, and so how do we assure ourselves or when do we assure ourselves? Is this something that you're going to bring back to us and we'll eventually be able to discuss candidly what kind of contingency levels do we have for the project? You know, historically, what have our overruns look like? And are we, are we far enough away from that that we're not going to repeat the mistakes we've made? Um, when do we do that? We've built, done that for the last year, in fact. And it's not based on any particular agency's delivery. Uh, it's based on projects that are of a comparable scale and complexity with this delivery method. Not just MTA, but other city agencies? Correct, yeah, okay. of a similar size. So right, as, as the project gets bigger, your contingency percentage will get smaller. That, that, that's one example. That's fair enough. Jonathan, I think, mentioned 5%, which is where you are now. So you got a long way to go uh, <laughs> before yep. we have a better idea. So look, I, I guess I'll just say that Speaking as one director, I, I have a pretty strong interest, uh, I, ex I expect many of my colleagues do as well, about these numbers that are not pinned down yet and when we're going to get the chance to pin them down and how we're going to be sort of led to evaluate um, whether we've got adequate levels of escalation and contingency. Uh, for example, I mean, you talked about a six-month delay that you and Jeff thought you needed to do. It seems to me you made the right decision, but that's six more months of what you used to think it was going to cost. So um, I, I, I look forward to that, and I understand that you're in a bit of a pickle today about how forthcoming you can be, and uh, I'm looking forward to a time when we can, we can be in the open a little bit more than we are now. Um, a couple more, uh, just two more, and these I think are relatively quick. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned the PMO who has not been hired yet. Mm -hmm. So you're about to hire them? Yeah, so we, we've got an RFP set up with, with the scope of work. Um, I, 
I could use a little direction on should I set the contract up in a way that's generalized that could be used for other projects of this scale or am I making it very specific to Potrero? Um, but other than that, you know, we have a we, we have the scope set and, and we can go out and, and get it on the street and we want to make sure to have them on board. Um, you know, I would prefer if they're on board even before the project agreement is complete. Um, that's when we sort of have them on. I think it would be helpful to get independent guidance even before that, especially as we're finalizing the, the final project agreement. But other than that, we're generally ready to go. Well, in my own view, in terms of, of scope of work, is you know, uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, if we need something for Potrero right now, we, yep. we've got a bunch of projects in the pipeline, right? Presidio, elsewhere. Um, so we could always pick those up. Yep. I, I think it'd be a good thing to have a PMO for the agency from the start, yep. um, so you can adapt them to different projects. But okay. um, uh, look, again, that's another one I look forward to. And finally, the bites at the apple, um, mm -hmm. which I, I guess we've adopted that terminology. So the first bite was March, the mm -hmm. second bite's today. Mm -hmm. uh, the third bite, you believe, is 18 to 24 months away? No, actually, it should be sooner than that. It will be um, the entitlements and um, the certification of the EIR. That is probably more in the 12-month window. So before, because that's really like, this is what we think the project is, right? And getting the entitlements approved around that. Um, I, as I'm thinking about it, we can provide updates on where the project is headed cost-wise as we go through iterations and get further design. Um, so during those milestones, I think we can probably give you the information you need. I think, again, we need to, listen, we want, this is another lesson learned, plenary is gonna be our partner, right? This isn't the city versus the contractor. We really wanna set things up as a partnership. And so I really do wanna start off with a very strong foundation from them. And then the numbers we give this board are gonna be from both of us. You know, to some extent, independently vetted by the PMO to some extent, vetted by you, the MTA board, vetted by the Board of Supervisors to some extent at certain milestones. But I, I do wanna set that up with them first, but I think some of your requests, um, I'm fine with being transparent about where the nature of the project's going to go. I think as you're saying right now, just before, you know, we, we really get that team together and we, and we get all the fundamentals of um, the implementation team together, I'm not ready to do that right now. Yeah, and uh, as I said, I'm gonna hold my peace today and uh, wish you a good marriage. But hold us accountable. Like, again, this is, you know, one of the next big generation of projects and you should hold us accountable and I'm happy to come back and provide the board regular updates. All right, thank you, uh, Jonathan. Madam Chair, thank you. Thank you, and I know that Director Hensey has some questions. I do, I just have a couple of them. Uh, Director Herman Rizzi so, so often does, God, did an elegant job of covering the finance questions and I would echo his sentiment that um, we, we wish um, when, when you can be a little bit more open about the finances, I think it'd be good to come back to this board in this setting to sort of go over those and sort of so we can provide regular monitoring. My question is, I know that we don't have, you know, ultimate 
They're stationed it all over the housing, separate and apart, except for the fact that it will be on our MTA land. Um, but do we have a cutoff point as to what uh, feasibility of the housing is going to be determined? Are we going to know that? Is, is, is there an off-ramp in terms of deciding like when in the process are we going to have to make a final decision on the viability of that, the housing? Yes, yeah, so, so the PDA phase does have a, a series of, of periods where we go through a review and we determine the feasibility. And there, there are many different levels of feasibility. There's you know, construction feasibility, regulatory feasibility, like you know, will the city yeah. accept this project? And, and financial feasibility, right? So those are all going to be important elements that we're gonna be working with plenary through during the PDA phase. Um, one of the risks, and, and this is why we're taking some lessons learned here for Presidio, is because we've integrated the infrastructure, anything related to the housing that causes delay, delays our bus yard. Um, and so we're evaluating what that really means for the future when we set ourselves up for that type of situation. The nature of the site at Petro made it impossible for us not to do that. But again, we wanted to maximize the development opportunity on the property, right? And so in that case, that was the air rights at this particular site. Um, as part of our updates to the board at various stages in the schedule I showed you, Again, I am happy to flag to the board the risks that we are seeing across those three elements, constructability and design, so unknowns and some of those contingencies that will turn into costs that Tim Kempf talked about. Um, the risks to the housing, meaning can you know, the plenary team um, and its partners secure the um, subsidy and other sources that are required to fund the affordable housing and the workforce housing. Um, to some extent, we will have to partner with them on the workforce housing. Um, if there are risks, yes, the answer is there are definite off-ramps. Um, and that will be a difficult decision for this board and for the city, but we will talk to you about that. Like, we have planned in the process to have those conversations, um, but, it's not all or nothing. So if the risk is overwhelming and it's like this starts to risk the bus yard, we just need to move forward at some point. Um, and so we have those, we have thought those out in the schedule. Um, it is clear in the PDA what some of those milestones are. Um, and if we start seeing signs, yes, there are off ramps built into it and we will have those conversations with you um, through that process. But that will be a, a decision of this board if it, if, it, if it comes to it. We will get to make that decision. Yes. So what, what is occurring now is, I mean, the PDA is actually a pretty good deal. Like, we are moving well, a lot yeah. of the, the design requirements and cost to the plenary team. If, if you look at the calendar item, we're really liable for 4.9 million, or I can't remember now, it's, it's four some, point something million. Yeah, in the form of a continuation payment, if they meet the milestone. If not, we go to termination, and we go to termination because we can't make it work, right? Those risks materialize, it just doesn't work. But we get the work product, which is probably worth more than $10 million at that point in time. So that is the value of this P3 the design and schedule risk is now going to move onto 
the team, the developer team. Um, we will be monitoring and working with them to mitigate those risks and determining whether or not they have the capability to overcome them once they're identified. And we will okay. keep the board updated about that. Okay, and then my last question is, we, we, did, get, we did get a few comments about uh, one of the renderings, and I know that this isn't the space today to uh, talk about those, those renderings and how the thing is gonna look and the detail design, et cetera. But it did bring up a question that I think, um, using your analogy, using your analogy of the wedding and the, the the marriage. So, what is the public going to be invited to participate in this party? And if you could walk us through some of the the ways, and maybe if there's requirements for public engagement or any sort of public engagement, that would be helpful. I think. Yeah, so I'm going to ask Bonnie Jean Von Crow to come up, but my quick answer to that is <laughs> one of the things in our, in our uh, poet's plan was to set up the Patrol Yard Working Group, and we work with them regularly to actually set up the comms for our public meetings and our processes. Um, another element of the PDA is that we start having an immediate series of multiple meetings. One of those conversations will be about outreach and our approach, again, in partnership on how to do that. And I will let Bonnie Jean speak to that a little. Thank you, Bonnie Jean Van Crow, Public Affairs Manager for the Building Progress Program. So yeah, in terms of Director Hinsey, in terms of the outreach and engagement, really we are at just the start of um, this next phase of the process. So we do anticipate um, doing outreach to the public throughout this phase. Um, we will be working directly with the Petro Neighborhood Collective Group to, um, they will be uh, developing a public outreach and engagement plan. And um, we will be working directly with them on that and then also doing inreach to our, you know, to our SFMTA staff at the yard and, and, and other stakeholders. So absolutely, this is just, just the beginning of a long process. Um, and as, as has been said multiple times in this meeting, you know, absolutely the, the images that were shown today are just at that 5% concept design. And so there's, there's many steps to go before they get to um, a more refined design and that will be all part of the process moving forward. Exactly. I'm sure you'll have a lot of diverging opinions, so I wish you well in leading leading this on behalf of the agency as as our sort of public facing figure. I would I I wish you good uh, a good project. In that it's going to be a um, bit of a roller coaster, I think. Um, thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Dr. Eakin. Thank you, uh, and thank you, Director Henze, for, for starting off uh, sort of the direction that I also wanted to go, so just to, to elevate some of the public comments we received, which I'm sure staff has seen as well, uh, just great design concerns about the sort of monolith along 17th Street, <laughs> not necessarily being like state-of-the-art uh, urban design. Um, so maybe that's just one of those 5% renderings that's not even worth showing <laughs> because it just creates more problems. Um, so hoping that that's not anything like our final product. Um, and then also just the desire for a pedestrian crossing at Hampshire across 17th, obviously, mm -hmm. to the park, which is a draw, and everyone wants to, to be able to get there safely. Um, but just maybe just so the public can understand, looking maybe back at slide three, which is kind of your process, could you just help us understand 
when um, those decisions about those types of design elements will actually be made in the process? Oh, um, so I, well, let me see. One of the, the challenges, um, and actually I, I really wanna thank the residents and advocates in the mission, was many people thought we couldn't get a project like this even to this step. And I think it was, you know, due credit to again our, our neighborhood working group, which again our, our normal process is to plan for an outreach event, and we'll probably have an outreach event around the design, like we had one around walking people around and giving them tours, and we had one on the massing. So forget the design, but at least like this is how big this building's gonna be in the mission. How do you feel about it? Um, we usually talk through process and the message we wanna get and how it will be received with the neighborhood working group, and then we go out to the public. So we really let the neighborhood working group help us craft the message, and I think that's what's really worked well. Um, a lot of that discussion will happen in where you see PDA phases one and two, so I assume that we will continue to do work and talk about um, what people's thoughts are around the project now that they've seen it. Um, up to the point of entitlement. So I'm sure we'll get a lot of feedback. And as Bonnie Jean said, we definitely intend on having conversations with the public about that. Like, I did go to planning school and my specialty is in urban design, so I too do not, you know. <laughs> we, will, we will create a beautiful piece of infrastructure for this city. So that will, I, I would say, really in the period of entitlement and a little bit after, because that's where you're really getting deep into design. And really, PDA phase two is about the financial and project agreements in order to build this. These are all the things that will be required. So it's gonna be pretty exciting for the next 14 months. And I would say in that window of time, we will definitely have numerous conversations with the public about the design of the building. Okay, but just to be clear, the Board of Supervisors will approve that design. This board will not have a stake we, in approving no, we that will, design. No, we will bring it to this board. At the, at the conclusion of phase three, it comes back to this board, is that right? We will. We will come back to this board every single time. While you do not have the legal ability to improve the entitlements, I think when we bring, um, when we get our, our certification for our EIR and we have the proposal for the entitlements, I think it's appropriate to come to the MTA board before we go to the Board of Supervisors. So even though you don't have a legal approval of that, especially on the entitlement side, we will come to you anyway and show you the project. And I will just say the Planning Commission will have a lot to say. <laughs> I can assure you this yeah. kind of mass thing they will not be supportive of. Yeah, yeah, okay. Thank you, Madam Chair. Director Yacudio. Thank you so much. Um, I received a very thorough briefing from the team, and so my questions are few. Uh, but the first one is just a, a reminder, which is something I did say in the briefing, um, of the importance in your conversations uh, with plenary to make sure that the commercial spaces are functional mm -hmm. um, for lots of different kinds of commercial uses. Because I would hate for something uh, with such a large project with so many moving parts uh, to forget the need of a, of a really well-working ground floor commercial retail space to be able to bring the neighborhood together. Yep. Because those are the spaces that the neighborhood, most of the neighborhood will actually get to use uh, are, are the spaces on the ground floor, those who don't live in the building. But I do applaud us for getting to this point. I think, you know, I know there's, it's a long road ahead. There'll be a lot of presentations, a lot of questions asked and answered. But I want to congratulate all of you because it is truly, um, 
it's something to be proud of. I think sometimes we forget that San Francisco can do bold things. Mm -hmm. And this is a bold thing to try to build hundreds of units of housing on top of a functioning bus yard in order to both alleviate our needs and also alleviate the city's needs as a whole to make the city uh, more welcoming to everyone. So I applaud us for, for being willing to put our, stick our neck out and try to do that. I have one like specific question and then I kind of want to throw it back to a colleague on the board here. So one is just about this terminating event uh, of whether mm -hmm. if the PDA term expires before commercial close. Mm -hmm. Are you worried about that at all, that particular thing, given, again, the six-month delay and uh, commercial close, if I read it correctly, being kind of at the end of all this kind of process before construction starts? This is why we need the honeymoon. Um, and honeymoons are famously very short. Yes. And, and I hope it will be short. Um, I think we made a lot of progress by initiating the BAFO. And I think some of the concerns, um, that the city had in order to make this an implementable project to some extent were dealt with by having those conversations and asking for um, updated proposals. So um, I feel good, and I think it's very important, again, that we set up a very strong team and that we walk into this as partners. And if we do so, I am optimistic about the future. Great. Um, just an advice point, I guess, then, is on the schematics, because we did already receive some feedback on mm -hmm. the very initial schematics and you know San Franciscans are going to be very you know concerned about how this looks and feels and they should but if you have a working group of folks in the community that you know are going to be most uh, concerned about the way the thing look in, looks and feels I know you'll do this but perhaps bring it to them first before it becomes public absolutely to avoid that yep. and I guess the last thing I'd say is director Hemminger I mean I feel like you um, you did such good work in, in going through it and asking the questions. And I just want to ask you, like, do you have, do you have, I know you have concerns, but is there, do you advise us to do anything different but approve it now? Or you, do you think there's something that should change at this stage? Because I kind of want to take my guidance from you a little bit. Madam Chair, uh, with your permission, just uh, <laughs> answering my uh, Friend and colleague. No um, problem. No one's behind you, so that's fine. <laughs> okay. So I could just go on forever, huh? Well, not forever. <laughs> okay. Um, I think we should approve it today. Um, but I think we ought to keep our eyes open. Uh, and I've been reassured, I, I think, by Jonathan's presentation and some of the briefings I've had uh, that their eyes are pretty wide open. Um, you know, the city does not have a lot of experience with public-private partnerships. Um, the state of California doesn't. Uh, so I, I think whenever you're first or second or third in the queue, uh, you're liable to be sort of the bleeding edge. Um, and uh, so I, I, I think they're trying to learn as much as they can from what we've seen. Uh, the, the one thing that I was concerned about today, and still am concerned, is that, you know, as the cost estimating evolves, it's going to get closer and closer to what we think it's going to be to build the thing. Um, but remember, uh, things happen that you're not counting on. 
Uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld famously called them the unknown unknowns. Uh, and I'm going to be looking very carefully at whether or not we think they have enough funding reserved for what they don't know might happen. Um, those are the ones that kill you every time. Uh, and just as when you get married, you find out things about your partner <laughs> that you didn't know before. You On your honeymoon, married. you're finding out these things? <laughs> um, you know, we are also getting some benefit from this. Uh, and that is because we're moving some of that risk onto the developer, the contractor. Whereas in typical design bid building, you're, you're, you're hugging the whole deal. Um, and you've got ultimate control over the project, but you, you bought all the risk with all that control. And so, look, I, I'm, I'm interested to see how well we can do on this, uh, because if we can do well on this, uh, we do have, as Jonathan indicated, a, a long list of inventory here uh, that needs repurposing and redevelopment. And as I think Director Eakin mentioned, um, We've, we've, we've got a number of projects that could really help make a dent um, on our housing uh, challenge as well as our transportation shortfalls. So I hope that's responsive. It is. Thank you very much, uh, Director, and thank you, Chair Borden, for that also. Um, I appreciate it. And with that in mind, I think that we not only should approve this and 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 steward it, but also celebrate it, because <laughs> this is the largest project, if I'm not mistaken, that we'll have taken on since the Central Subway, or at least, yes, yeah, since the Central Subway. And we have work to do to re-instill trust of the public in us, and this is a really exciting project, because it hits on so many goals, and so um, I look forward to both joining Director Hemminger and keeping a watchful eye on it, and doing the work that this board should do and letting the public know how amazing this project will be when it's completed after five years. Thanks. Thanks, and I, I would just say in, in closing, to wrap up everything, I, having been on the Planning Commission and having been through developer agreements and lots of big projects of this size and scope, things will change a lot from what we're talking about today for a variety of reasons. And so I, I know it's hard for us to get used to approving something we are we're a little bit shy because we've approved other things and they take more time and all that sort of stuff. And I think the approach we're trying to take here is a more measured one to kind of, you know, try to anticipate and create out points when we realize things aren't working. And I think that's the right approach here. So I'm, I'm really glad that we're, we're doing it this way. I'm glad we could find a development team that we could make workable terms with. And I think it's a real opportunity for us to hopefully uh, get it right and do something that really finally brings together that transit and housing linkage, which many projects are approved at in transit, I mean, at planning, and their only connection is the fact that the project happens to be on a transit corridor. <laughs> so um, I, don't, I don't know if anybody has a motion, but at this point, let's, why don't we move to public comment and let members of the public comment um, and uh, move forward may, that may way. I, I want to, I, I do want to add one thing. I absolutely want to thank Susan and the city attorney's office, like, we have what I call the Supreme Court of Attorneys on this one. <laughs> Sid Jimenez, Carol Wong from the real estate team, Yadira Taylor from the public works team. Like, you have got amazing professionals who put a multi-hundred-page RFP and multi-hundred-page um, agreement together, and 
often they don't get the thanks they deserve, but they were key components of, of making this happen. So I absolutely want to thank them for getting us to this point. No, thank you for everyone. I know it's not easy and it's just like a, a little bit of a flex since it's not our core area of expertise or jurisdiction, but it's great that we are doing this. So with that, we'll open it to public comment. Members of the public, since no one in the room appears to be a, a member of the public, anyone who is online who would like to speak, you could press star three to join the queue. We have one speaker in the queue. Please go call her. Hi, uh, my name's Jolene Yi, and I am a longtime resident of the Northeast Mission, as well as um, on the volunteer board for Friends of Franklin Square, which is the park that's located directly north of this project. Um, I've also participated in the working group for the Potrero Muni Yard Redevelopment. I just wanted to express again um, some of the things that the community has really asked from this project, um, including having an on-site public bathroom available, uh, making sure that there's adequate setbacks on 17th Street to reduce the shadow impact that this project will have on the park, specifically on the playground area, to also provide pedestrian access across 17th Street and to activate the 17th Street um, facade area. So I was, you know, I hear everyone saying that these renderings that are being shown on the presentation are just 5% conceptual, which I guess is good news because when I first saw them, I was pretty disappointed at just seeing this huge wall. So I'm really looking forward to working with the group to make sure that the development actually incorporates the things that the community has asked for. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Any additional callers on the line? I see no additional callers. So with that, we will close public comment. And I, I would ask the city attorney, and I'm, I'm not that, it, that, that the shadow shouldn't be an issue, but I assume this, I don't think this park's in the in the Reckon Park shadow ordinance. I don't think it's one of the shadow buzz, budget parks, right? I think that's pretty much mostly in other parts of the city. Uh, Director Eakin, I am not aware if it is, but I am sure that if it is, the rules will be followed. But um, I don't know. I'm sorry. No problem. <laughs> All right. That closes public comment. Do we have a motion? <laughs> I'll move the item. Seconded. Can you please call the roll, Secretary Solo? On the motion to approve, Director Heminger? Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinsey? Aye. Hinsey, aye. Director Yugutiel? Aye. Yugutiel, aye. Vice Chair Eakin? Aye. Eakin, aye. Chair Borden? Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. The motion passes. That moves us to our next item. Places you on item number 12, discussion and vote pursuant to admin code section 67.10D as to whether to invoke the attorney-client privilege and conduct a closed session conference with legal counsel. Are there many, any members of the public who would like to speak to us going into closed session? I see no hands online. Seeing none, is there a motion? So moved. Second. Can you pl please call the roll? On the motion to go into closed session, Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinsey. Aye. Hinsey, aye. Director Yucutiel. Aye. Yucutiel, aye. Vice Chair Eakin. Aye. Eakin, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. The board will now go into closed session.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. Yes, we the are ready to return. SFMTA has returned to open session. Places Mark. you on number item number 13, announcement of closed session. The board met in closed session for the listed case and voted to settle the matter. Uh, places you on item number 14, motion to disclose or not disclose the information discussed in closed session. Motion to, motion not, to not to disclose. <laughs> oh, seconded. Please call, <laughs> Secretary Zoic, please call the roll. On the motion to not disclose, Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Director Yukutiel. Aye. Yukutiel, aye. Vice Chair Eakin. Aye. Eakin, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. The motion passes and concludes the business before you today. And that adjourns the meeting for November 1st. We'll see everybody again on the 15th. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day.